Welcome to Teeth and Titanium, a podcast about oral surgery, residency, and life. We would like to thank the Canadian Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery for their continued support. All opinions expressed in this podcast by the hosts and their guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of the CAOMS. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for surgical decision making. Welcome everybody to Teeth and Titanium episode 37. This is our November episode. Oscar, how's it going? Good, good. Like honestly, we're already approaching the end of the year. Where did the first 11 months go? Yeah, I feel like the year was going normally. And then between September and now, it no. just passed by instantly. For me, it's like since April, since Lennon was born. I'm like, where did the year go? I have no oh, idea. Yeah. I have no yeah, idea. Fair enough. Yeah, you're sleep deprived. All, oh. the, all the days blend together. Well, it's tough for you to coordinate because like, you don't know, am I going to work today? Is this another day off? You know, you're barely in the office anymore. <laughs> I've become a nanny. That's what I mean. <laughs> you, become, you become a part-time employee of yeah, practice yeah. is what I hear. Yeah, 100%. I'm going to talk to Bianca and see how much you help out. <laughs> <laughs> listen, listen, we don't need to go down this yeah, road. Yeah, we don't exactly. need, we don't, we lay, we've been, we've been doing great for over three years now. There's no need to turn on each other. Let's not, let's not, let's not talk about your work schedule. Let's not talk about, we're on the let's same not team. talk about my parental responsibilities. <laughs> we're on the same team. We support each other no matter what. <laughs> Speaking of support, you know, last episode, I talked a lot about the Quebec meeting, Brad, and I went there and how much we got such a warm welcome. And I had a great time there with the Quebec uh, surgeons. And how I, I already said, felt like I missed out. And then after I heard from you guys, I'm like, oh, God, I really missed out. Now. Yeah, it was a great time. And and uh, yeah, we, we, we talked a lot about how we got along well with them. But I'm having this problem where now I'm starting to think, am I just like falling in love with the last group of people that I meet? Because then what happens is, Former McGill resident, my former chief, actually, Darcy McClellan, who may or may not listen to the podcast. He was kind of vague because he kind of insulted the podcast most of the time I was with him. But then he also knew about things we were saying. So one of those. So is it like, one of those fake listeners who acts like, like he's too cool, but he's still listening? It, yeah, that was the yeah. vibe I got. Yeah. The vibe I got was like. No, that's that's Darcy in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> he was my junior resident in GPR and oral surgery. It's so. The lineage is always awesome. The Darcy was. Darcy was Brad's junior, and then I was Darcy's junior. Like, it's just funny how... That's, yeah, that's funny. So he's too cool for school. I think my gut would tell me he listens. I think he listens. I think he listens. He's probably got a burner account to listen to us. Yeah, because he seemed pretty knowledgeable, but he was really nice. He invited me to speak to the Atlantic Society of Oral Surgeons. They had their annual meeting. So I flew out to Halifax, met all with them, and uh, gave them a lecture on some orthodontic stuff. And... What I realized is we have a lot of podcast fans out east. Oh, that's nice here. And they're just nice people. So they're super nice. But the residents came up there. They're like, yeah, we listen. It's awesome. The current staff. But also a lot of the former residents came up. And like people I had no idea were listening to the podcast. They were coming up. They were saying they're huge fans of the podcast. The residents also would always like talk about CT Reed, which, as you know, always makes me feel good. Yeah. You know, it's funny. They... They didn't ask for shout outs. They were just talking to me about the podcast. I didn't even ask to be mentioned. I told them, you know, I might uh, give them a vague kind of general wink, wink. Like I know NE is listening. I know JP is listening, but the one shout out they wanted me to give and they, they wanted me to give no explanation for this. They just said, you have to say this and we'll deal with the rest. I think it's like an internal thing amongst them, but they said we have to give a shout out to Juicy J. <laughs> I don't know what this means. But so do you know who Juicy J is? I do not know who Juicy J is. They told me. Juicy J listens to this podcast and that's the nickname. 
So they said, just please, all we ask is give a shout out to Juicy J. But the thing is, and what I'm trying to realize is, I was loving this Atlantic society. I loved going out east. They were super, like, am I just falling in love with the most recent group of people that we meet? Honestly, maybe, but I also think it's the demographic you're choosing, right? Like you're going further east from Ontario. Mm-hmm. I think people just get nicer as you go. <laughs> like I think if as you leave Ontario, people just get nicer. Whether it's, east, Either or it's west. east or west. Yeah. <laughs> like so realistically, I think that's what's going on. Even actually within Ontario, as you go east and west from Toronto, they get nicer yeah, and yeah. nicer. Uh, it, it's true. It's just our little area is probably the least. And everyone's very nice. But when you compare it to the rest of the country, yeah, it seems like Toronto's busier. People are just got more to do or feel like they have more to do and they're always in a rush. So, yeah, I don't think it's that it's just the newest population that you're meeting. It's just that you're meeting other populations that are not Toronto. Yeah, definitely. That's fair enough. So really appreciate the warm up. I appreciate the invite. You know, I love lecturing and things like that. Yeah. I want to describe the structure of this event to you, Oscar. <laughs> this is the Atlantic Society meeting. Wendell, I have a quick question. Yeah. Was this in person or did you do it on Zoom? <laughs> so I was told by Darcy, who is a nice guy, not the most organized guy in the world, I would say. I they said you flew into Halifax. Well, I was told it was a Zoom meeting until the day before the conference. So Friday at 9 a.m., I got a text saying from... Person that's this in- is what he told Bianca, by the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I got a text on Friday morning. The conference was on Saturdays from a former Dal resident that I know. And she basically said, Hey, I can't wait to see you tomorrow. You're like, What? Looking forward to catching up. Can't believe you're coming here to like present in person. Like, so excited to meet. You're like, Is there a virtual meeting after the meeting? Like, like, so then I got a little confused. So I'm resident. I was like, Darcy, is this not over Zoom? And he's like, no, like we're all meeting in person, but I- I'm sure you can do Zoom. I mean, I haven't really checked into it. I'm like, wait, so everyone is there in person and everyone thinks I'm going to be there in person. And I'm the only one that didn't know this. And he's like, yeah, but it's a big deal. And I was like, dude, everyone's coming there thinking I'm flying there to make a presentation. No one wants to do a Zoom lecture. So it was an absolute gong show. It's Friday, 9 a.m. I have to figure out, okay, can I fly to Halifax today? Like I'm working that day. Can I fly to Halifax? You know, I got kid responsibilities. We have family Dude, events. Though- I relax. Okay. I do have, I do have some kid <laughs> responsibilities. We have a family event that weekend. You have to find flight. The flights were, I don't even want to talk about how expensive the flights were. It was, oh, you got hosts for sure. There's no question. Yeah. 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 You, you know, it's bad when Google tells you when you're booking the flight, this is abnormally high. Don't book. No, you see the red. You, I just click another, I click another city. I'm like, I'm not going there. Yeah. So definitely price was an issue. Flight was an issue. Found a hotel coordinating to try and get there. And. The biggest hard part was I was on call. So I finally figured out the flight. I finally figured out the hotel. I figured out all the com- everything with, with Darcy, but I'm on call. So I messaged our group. I'm like, can I take call? Everyone's saying, no, I can't, I can't, I can't. Shout out to Daisy Shamali, who you know, former staff of yours, Oscar works at Sick Kids. She's so uh, nice. And she's also part of August. Super nice. She took, she's actually an incoming president too for the CMS. So I see her on the executive committee too. She, she took call. She said, when to listen, go to Halifax. I'll take your call. Don't even worry about it. That sounds like Daisy. She's so classy. Yeah. So I owe her a day and she was the only reason I was really able to go. So I flew to Halifax. I got there at two in the morning. Darcy picked me up from the airport at two. We went to a hotel, slept for four hours, woke up at six, and then we went to the event. So, oh, and then by the way, I flew back at like 10 p.m. So I was there for less than 24 hours in Halifax. Wow. And you were still wowed by those people. And you were there for like 14 hours. 
18 well, hours. Within, within 10 minutes of being there, I was like, thank God I came in person. Yeah, because in person... It's just a different vibe. It's just better. Also, like, it was way more interactive. Like, they were asking questions. I was asking them questions. Other people were bringing up stuff. Like, it was just super fun because it was interactive. And you can only do that if you're in person. But check out this format of the event. So you start, you meet up at this nice oral surgery practice. They have like a CE center. So you get to the CE center. There's a chef, a private chef making everyone breakfast. I'm already sold. You, we haven't even started tip of the iceberg. Okay. Private chef makes you breakfast. You got coffee, you got everything. We're socializing. We're chit-chatting. Then Darcy made a, a presentation, which was actually really well received and very entertaining. Then he introduced me. I made, you know, a series of lectures on orthognathic. And then we get to lunch. Lunch is also served there. And then they have their Atlantic Society meeting. So that was kind of nice to sit on to just listen to like what's going on in their provinces, their OR time, their nursing shortages, you know, all the things they deal with, you know, rural communities, lack of OR time, lack of major centers. It's really cool to see that. Then we get driven to a Porsche dealership where you can test drive or, or, you know, yeah, you can test drive any Porsche you want. Just like pick one and you can go for a drive. And here I'm thinking like, okay, it's going to be me and the Porsche dealer. We're going to, you know, take it right here. Take it. No, he's like, you know, just, oh, okay. It's you, you and a few residents, you're in the car. Like, here's the keys. Like, go have fun. And like, we'll see you soon. Wow. Like, what is going on here? So we were in the electric Taycan and Mo's little brother, as you know, kid Mo, as we call him, mini Mo, he's a resident Dal. So I'm with him, with the R1 Eric. And, you know, we basically, they know the geography so they took us to an abandoned road and we're just like going as fast as we can in these porsches driving them around they got wine and cheese they got charcuterie boards this is just like that the intermission this is like the porsche this dealership is amazing. on the way to the dinner which was also downtown super nice you know they're known for seafood there like the best yeah they got great ever food scene amazing food scene so i had dinner with them chat with them and then i literally head to the airport and fly back so it was a great time and a great event, but I just think that they're really structuring things well when it comes to their annual meeting. I just feel like it was well done. I think it was well done. So shout out to the Atlantic Society. Thanks for inviting me and thanks for being so welcoming and honestly being super fun. It was one of the one of the most fun days I've had. Okay. And shout out to the, no, no, hold on. Shout out to the person who texted you the day, on the Friday. Yeah, it was Alero. You know Alero. Oh, okay. Thank God Alero texted you that because that made it way better. It was her and another who's a current fellow. His name's Ahmed. He also had texted me too. So the two of the, between the two of them, I was like, wait, what is going on here? Like this seems to be an in-person I'm missing meeting. something here. Yeah. Yeah. So they were both super nice. I did get my mind thinking a little bit. And as I said, Oscar, we're on the same team and I'm not trying to be, you know, trying to create animosity here, but I do feel like I'm kind of going to conferences, giving a lot of lectures, meeting with the residents, shaking hands, kissing babies, promoting ourselves, promoting the pod. I feel you like I'm- kiss my baby. I feel like I'm doing a lot and- I feel like, is Oscar doing as much work? Is he promoting? I mean, wow. Brad coming to a Quebec, Brad setting up a table. He's got a new mic. Like he does. Do, he does. Do you feel like you're promoting us as much as you should be? Or should I just, should I just walk off today? <laughs> and just say like, you know what? I'm done with this. You know what, Wendell? I'm not carrying my own. You're doing too much for it. Let's do it. It's just be a teeth podcast now. Not even titanium. No, no. I'm titanium. You're teeth. Okay, fine. I'm teeth. Either way. It doesn't matter. <laughs> we'll just keep one of the parts. Well, like, for example, at the Atlanta Society meeting, like, I don't know, even at the UFT event, which we'll talk about later, one of the most common questions I get when people are fans of the podcast, like, they always, like, they're always super, super nice. And they talk about their favorite episodes and guests and funny things we talked about. But one of the common themes I find is someone always says to me, yeah, where's Oscar? Like, is he coming? Like, where is he? Where is he at this event? Like, where's Oscar? They're always asking where you are. Yeah, you should be like, we just run in different circles. That's really what. <laughs> but we don't. That's the funniest thing. 
<laughs> we don't. <laughs> no, and, and, we, and we really don't. And I do actually laugh about this all the time because if people would see us together. They'd be like, okay, they're so similar. They're the same person. But yeah, you attend just an abnormal amount of events comparatively to me. It's not even close. Like it, it just isn't that that's you are a guy who credit to you. You love doing this. You love going on the lecture scene. And I think you're really good at it too. I'm especially with this last year, really, I'm at home. I'm, I'm kind of doing this. This is my interaction. And then you also have the interaction that you see residents, right? Because you're part of an academic program. I interact with, with my practice. It's like, if you're a private practice guy, you're not meeting up with that many other old surgeons. Like it just doesn't happen. And then that's, I think one of the things I miss the most, and I guess you could solve it by, yeah, going to more events, but it does take time out of your life, right? When you're busy with practice, when you're busy with family. But one of the things I miss the most at a residency is that meeting up with people. Like residency for me was a great time. It was almost like you're part of a, a sports team. And then when you leave it, yeah, you're in practice, but it's it's not the same, right? You're not going through, through the same long hours, crazy call as you are when you're resident, you're other people. So that's what I would miss the most. And I think being part of the academic program allows you to do that and then just see people so much more than I do. Yeah. And what I would say is, and one other thing I realized is one of the reasons I have so much fun at these events and also chatting with the residents and laughing with them is that I'm still at the phase of my career where I'm closer to residency than I am to any of these other surgeons that are around me. They're all, you know, they've been working 20, 25, 15, 30 years, whereas I'm what, four, three, three years at a residency. You're, you're significantly closer to the people you're interacting with, like then tend to the actual staff that you're part of, because you're kind of part of the other side, but you're much closer to the other people. Yeah. And then like, part of me, I feel like kind of resident heart in some parts. Like you still are like, ah, this is kind of cool case. You or, like, you get, yeah. You feel, yeah. 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 And like, I'll, I'll give an example about that for you today. Shout out to Dave, actually. Dave Ao. He is the what? The third year? He listened. Yeah. He listens to the yeah, podcast. Yeah. He listens. So he was talking. So he was, uh, he ended up being in our OR today with me and Amir. We're in the OR and Dave is there. And just a nice, nice kid did some surgery today that I, he hadn't done too much before and he did really well. But it's nice to have that interaction, right? Like I don't really get to see residents, and especially with Amir, they don't usually come to his OR, so I don't really interact with them. It was nice. Because you used to have like a resident every now and then with you, I thought, like every now and then they come to the OR with you. They did. They did. And especially at Centenary. I don't really go to Centenary anymore, and that's where they're going. Uh... And, they switched them up. and I go mainly out of Humber now, and so they don't really have residents. But it was nice to teach things and to watch him learn. It's actually very gratifying to see somebody learn and be like, oh, you did that well. Especially the excitement they get out of like, accomplishing something because it's the first time for you it's like done this it, it is the procedure but not the teaching part the excitement was there for me too where i saw him do well and he like everything went great i was like wow that's really good yeah for me i'd be like that's just a normal procedure but it's nice to see somebody else do well so i can see why you like being part of that environment no question so he, their cohort's actually pretty good because there's dave and dave's the type of listener where he like didn't listen for a while and now he's like slowly getting into it. And I think he like went back and he's like caught up now. Maybe he's like, that's what he like, told late. me. He saw me he's almost caught up. I'm like, you better not tell Wendell that. Cause I'm like, I'm more lenient than Wendell. So you better be <laughs> yeah. caught up by the time you see him. Yeah. He's more of a late bloomer where his co-resident. So she's also an R3 Kelsey. Um, she's been like a loyal listener from the beginning. In fact, to the level where, you know how Spotify has that like end of the year Spotify wrapped. Yeah. She showed me her Spotify wrapped last year and like teeth and titanium was number two. Now we were we were we were number two. I said, "Why are we number one?" But you know, we're still number two. Pretty good. You know what, Dave? Don't even come to my war again. <laughs> you know Kelsey, Kelsey, Kelsey just jumped you. Kelsey just jumped over you. Yeah, so that's good. So, so just to 
put a bow on this, you, you would you would agree that you aren't working as hard to advertise or promote the we podcast. Know that. <laughs> we know that. That's not even a question. <laughs> you know, I'm completely honest with you. So yeah. So what you're trying to say is, I need to sign up for more of these events, or you? I pretty much have to book travel wherever you're going. Well, the, it's not even that. The thing is, what's the weirdest part, and this is the part that always blows my mind, is it's tough to get you out to things. But that's fine. You're busy, and also, as you said, you're not as into these things. But the funny part I find is whenever you do come, like last year, the education day or like an OZM's meeting, like you always have the best, you know, everyone. So you always have the best time. Oh yeah. Such a good time. Yeah. So it's not really the not wanting to go because it, it's so fun. It really is. And like, we'll, we'll talk about, are we talking about like the UFT meeting today? This yeah. Year? Yeah. Yeah. Like that it was, was this what this last weekend that just went by and I was so excited for it. And then you have issues that happen. Like Lex works on Saturdays and then my mom's supposed to take care and she gets sick and I'm like, I love my little guy. Don't get me wrong. I love spending time with him, but I was annoyed on it. Yeah. You wish you were there. Yeah. Like I was like, this is, this is a, I would like to be at this event. I like everybody there. We have fun. You get to see people you haven't seen all year. You know, everyone's going to show up or at least most people are going to show up and the people that are going to show up are the people you want to see anyway. The people that aren't going to be there. You don't really care about that much. So I was annoyed. I'm like, come on. Like you have to get sick this weekend, mom. And then it's hard to get like coverage for a gig. Yeah, I'm calling it coverage. Like it's called. It's not really called <laughs> taking care of your child. But it's hard to get that when you don't have a nanny or someone that takes care of your, ch- your, your child on the right. For sure. And then we were all there at the event. We were kind of heckling. We were sending you messages. Oh, I forgot about that part too. <laughs> yeah. We were heckling you for not being there. And then I was like, hey, Oscar, why don't you just come like later on in the for evening? Because Lex has done work. Yeah. And anything happened there to prevent you from coming? So that was amazing. Because I'm like, because you had been texting me like early in the day, like, oh, where are you at? And I'm like, yeah, I can't come. And then I'm like, you know, you know what? I can definitely go to the dinner. Now that I didn't, I was like, if I didn't, have a chance to go to the dinner before. Maybe I was like, okay, if I go to the course, I'll, I'll help out when I get home. But I'm like, no, I didn't go to the course. Like I can go to dinner. Hanging out with Lex around like three when she gets home from work, eat a cookie. Like we went out just to get coffee from a place we've never gone to, get a chocolate chip cookie, which is the most normal thing, right? Like there's usually never anything other ingredient than other chocolate chip cookies. It's You know what you're going to get. Okay. Take the first bite, instantly tongue is swelling up, instantly oh, wow. lips are on fire. And I'm like, Lex, get my EpiPen. Uh, did you have it 30 on? seconds. We were at home. Like we brought it home to you. Oh, uh, okay. Good thing you brought it home. Yeah. Cause if I didn't, I would have been, I didn't have an EpiPen on me. And usually we're really good at carrying an EpiPen. But since Lionel's been born, it's like we worry so much about his stuff that I did that we for kind of forget it. So actually, yeah, thank God that I was home because this one is probably the fastest reaction that I felt ever, like instantly. So you had to stab yourself with the EpiPen? Black stab me. Wow. Pretty good. Yeah, it's the second it time. Scared me a little bit. Oh, well, it's, it's so like not frequent, but it's so common now that it's just not. Yeah, like it's like whatever. Uh, yeah, so that means I can go to the dinner, but it sounded like it was honestly a great event. Everyone I've spoken to, everyone said it was amazing. Yeah, so we get into this U of T event. So it used to be the U of T alumni, but now it was rebranded the U of T Education Day because they realized like, why are we restricting That's this good. to yeah. alumni? But yeah, share the come. knowledge, 100%. Share, share the knowledge. So, you know, this year you have everyone from, like, from Toronto showing up, whether or not you went to U of T or whether or not you went to McGill. We had some residents from McGill. They got the U of T residents presenting. And then there's always the keynote speaker, like, who's it going to be? You know, one year it was Markowitz, one year it was Farrell, last year it was Farrell. This year, it's Sean Edwards. It's always so stacked. You're, it's always stacked. And I will say, former Teeth and Titanium guest. So yeah, yeah. that's two, Farrell and Sean. Yeah. Like, and, we're and getting we, a lineup. Yeah, we'd love to have Markowitz in the future. So we have Edwards coming, just phenomenal presenter, like super nice guy. We already knew that. We already knew that from our episode. I've known him so long. But just so knowledgeable. He's, oh, God, it's impressive just hearing him talk. Great speaker, great data, like not just mumbo jumbo, like he likes to base things on evidence, which is nice. 
Cole Casey's he showed. People were were definitely entertained. He, he's awesome. Just an awesome guy. And just a nice person too. Yeah. So we I had a unique opportunity because Rittenberg was there too. So I said, hey, Riddy, like, should we go over to Sean and kind of clear the air about this wine story? And, you know, who's right? Who's wrong? You know, with some beef airing on the podcast. And Riddy kind of did that thing where he's like, yeah, yeah, where is he? Let's go talk to him. And kind of like, you know, like, a fake kind of look around, kind of like you didn't really want to find him or yeah. really want to address it. So we're, we're still left wondering who is, who is correct. Uh, we're Sean still looking Reddy. for Sean right now. We're, yeah, we're still looking. We're not really sure who was right there. But yeah, a great event, a huge turnout. Like I actually really enjoyed it because I'm not a U of T alumni. Obviously I'm staff, but I'm not a U of T alumni. So a lot of the U of T people I might not know as well. But as I said, you know, Ehab, Olivia, like you got former McGill grads coming into this. Cause now they're based in Toronto, right? Based in Toronto, yeah. I'm seeing all these people that are now moved to Toronto, based in Toronto, all the people in the community. So it was a lot of fun. You catch up with people you haven't seen in a long time, coming from all over Ontario. So it was a great event, very well attended. The residents presented after, which is always fun. Edwards was grilling the residents, which is amazing. He was just destroying the residents. It was awesome to see. Dave talked about that today, too. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't going to bring up Dave, but at least... No, no, he owned up to it. He owned up to it today. Yeah, he got destroyed. <laughs> but at least he brought up... I, hey, listen, I didn't bring up his name. You did and he said you were a good sport because you got owned one time in your day too. I, yeah, I did. I told him, listen, <laughs> I've survived it. I've been there. Yeah. I've survived it. If I survived it. You'll be better it, off. I was like, you'll be better off for it. It'll make you stronger. And then, yeah. And then the nighttime event is a dinner, dinner, drinks, socializing. Uh, a bunch of us walked around Toronto afterwards trying to find a place to to hang out. So it was a great time. Honestly, a really great time. It sounds like Caminiti said it's going to be the first Saturday of November of each year. It seems like they want to establish a consistent date. They want to mark their calendars. And then each year he tries to get a big name. So, so yeah, it was a lot of fun. Shout out to the event and I'm happy everyone came. So one thing I wanted to talk to you about, Oscar, was is we have these, you know, grand rounds presentations at U of T once a month by a staff or sometimes a guest, you know, I'll always do one a year. All the staff will do one a year and then they'll bring some people. But one of the, one of the highlights of the year is we have, you know, Dr. David Suka, who's, you know, famous for TMJ surgery and obviously someone we want to eventually talk to on this podcast. He gives this kind of TMJ boot camp. And it's a three-part series, kind of like A to Z on everything, you know, TMJ-wise. And he was putting up his intro slides and he was presenting some of the data. And I like data, you know me, I like data. I like surgical logs. I have like a really robust surgical log. I don't trust anyone without a surgical log. Whatever you tell me you do, it doesn't matter to me. I need yeah, proof. I need to see the numbers. You're like a I need tax, to see the numbers. tax specialist right here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> CRA. I want to see the numbers. So. He put up the Mount Sinai Hospital Center for Excellence in TMJ. Don't forget, we're the Center for Excellence. I'm officially part of that center now. This was 1995 to 2020. So it's missing the last three years. Keep that in mind. They have done a total of 700 patients and 1,173 joints. You know, you know why? Now, okay, now that name works. That is a TMJ Center of Excellence. We are the center of excellence. It's a big deal. So I told him he's got, and he said since then, they'd probably add another 400 maybe or 300, 400. So I said, he's got to update the data he's going to, but it just really struck me as, wow, these numbers are ridiculous. I think other people in programs or in residencies are working will recognize just how insane those numbers are. So shout out to, to Dave and, and the group for really just doing this for a long time and doing high volume. I some way to, to Mount Sinai and U of T and I really enjoy it because I don't have to drive downtown. I get to just beat traffic. relax in the subway, beat the traffic. One thing I've caught myself doing a lot now, and I don't know if either of you do this, but I'm starting to see potential orthopedic surgery patients in the subway. Like I look at someone, I'm like, mm, man, like I would, 
how we do this, maybe a little BSSO, maybe, oh, you're class three. There's two types of people I see and I never know how to react. So the one, one person I see is, you know, like, for example, they're super class three, super prog and they're in braces. And I think, oh, like, okay. I wonder, like, I, I wonder, I wonder, yeah. I wonder, I assume they're having surgery and I wonder who's doing it. Like you kind of think about that. And then you see other people where maybe they have a facial asymmetry or they have, you know, malocclusion and you think, oh man, this, this could, could really benefit this person. But there's way of approaching these people in a non-disrespectful way like they may be say, happy. like they might be thrilled that they may not even know it exists people don't know about our profession but there's no easy way to kind of go up to someone and say hey like have you ever wanted to fix your crossbite or your facial asymmetry like hey, there's nothing you can do no i think it's it's actually impossible because you could pick on anyone and be like hey you want a nose job because your nose is crooked like you never go up and say that you're like hey you're overweight do you want to join a workout program so like as much as you probably are right and that that person would benefit there is no easy way and i would say there's no physical way to actually do it. unless you just wore a t-shirt that says i'm an oral <laughs> surgeon those orthopedic <laughs> surgery if you have questions just approach me while you're on the subway <laughs> but if not you, you physically can't yeah i just keep to myself but i was it's something i thought of especially in the toronto thought. subways you want to keep to yourself man <laughs> <laughs> So also you did a little bit of traveling recently. You went down, down south to Mexico, did a little conference there. Do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah. So I would say traveling really isn't, don't make it sound like it's a fun, like we have vacation. Uh, no, vacation. <laughs> Let's be clear here. Well, I went down for an implant course, like an all in four course. And it was a uh, shout out to Trish, the Nobel rep. I know we don't usually shout out people, but she's awesome. She really worked hard for us for me to get down there. The course was amazing. Three, da- three days in Guadalajara and just really getting to do a lot of full art stuff. They, they do the theory and stuff. But the main thing is I was down for three days and I did nine arches. Um, which is phenomenal. Which is amazing, right? Like that, that's, High a, volume. that's a ton of learning experience and it's back to back to back to back. So you just get to practice. Uh, the staff there were amazing. Oral surgery, perio, that were there. They're from Mexico. Really, really nice, genuine people. Super talented. They were showing some of their trauma cases. That's, that's, that's some next level trauma they're seeing there. Wow. And the wow. volume too, like they were just showing on their phones. It was like, bloop, bloop, bloop coming in. And it's like, yeah, three traumas just walked in. And I was like, wow, that's, <laughs> that's impressive. So really, really nice people. Shout out to all the patients there. Like just again, super, super humble, nice people who were so thankful for you being there. Like we're doing all on fours, two hours, three hours, and they're local and they're saying that things that we wouldn't do in our practice, right? We'd be, we'd be sedating, geeing all these patients. I know people do do with local, but I was surprised of how tolerant patients were there. Here, patients are getting cleaning and, and they're complaining, right? Like, so, so it's not the same. I would say the course was really educational, completely worth it. So I, I had a great time in Mexico. Did I see anything? No, we were, we left the hotel around 7.30 and I would get home around 8. Wow. So so busy days. Busy days. Yeah. Like the whole time you're doing something. So I, I didn't really see anything of Mexico other than the airport when I landed and when I left pretty much. Actually, a lot. The, the dinners we would go after, beautiful restaurants, like right at the hotel. Mm. Really, really nice. So, yeah, if you told me I was in Miami, I would have believed you. It was the best. So it sounds I, like you had a great time. It sounds like you recommend this. Yeah. Anyone who, if you get approached, definitely take the course. It was awesome. Nice. That's great to hear. Speaking of traveling, we are getting pumped. All three of us officially going to ACOM's Faces and Whistler. Big deal. I bought my, have you guys bought your plane tickets? I bought my plane ticket. Oh, you got it? I yeah. I'm, I'm like, I, I saw you send the text, but I didn't realize, like, I thought that you were just taking those flights. I didn't realize you had already bought the tickets. No, I buy things like far in a minute. I need, I'm Even too Halifax? busy. If... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, too, I'm, too, I'm too busy. If I, 
if I leave this to later, it, you'll forget there's too much stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. 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 So you know, I'm go- I know I'm going. I know I know when the dates are. So why, why delay just it? Book it off and just buy. Like it's only going to go up in price. So I, yeah. So I bought my tickets. You guys need to get on that so we can make sure all three of us are there. I don't want any last minute excuses. Yeah. No. No. That's exciting. I think everyone. We're all very excited for. Yeah. So Brad, you buy your ticket. I have my hotel and my ski pass. I just need the plane ride. <laughs> he's halfway there. He's halfway yeah. there. Yeah. You're almost there. Yeah. So we're really excited for that. So next we're going to go into our guest segment. So we're really, really excited for our guest this month. So this, what's the audience though? The audience, it's been generating a lot of buzz. We had a ton of fan mail. You know, we asked for questions for our guest interview because we said we we're going to talk about taxes, Canadian taxes. Tons of people sent questions and we really appreciate that. We try to include almost every single question we got. Um, a lot of overlapping. So that made it a little bit easier. And basically, although we're an educational podcast about oral surgery, we do like to branch out into different topics. You know, we've talked about financial planning, investments. And and today we want to talk about taxes because this is such a a minefield and you, you don't want to get in trouble. And it's something all of us have to deal with. For a lot of us, because you went from high school to undergrad to dental school to residency to then work, sometimes you're in your 30s and you've actually never had a job before. Or like a real job. And I think a lot of us are are quite smart individuals, right? We've gotten far, but taxes are hard to understand. Yeah. And everyone, you get different opinions. So it's just, for me, it's a very frustrating subject. For sure. Um, so we reached out to Mohammed from Tax Heroes, and he has a huge, huge presence online. He's very well known for not only being educational, but being a tax expert in Canada. And he was gracious, gracious enough to uh, come on the podcast give us some insight. We asked him a ton of questions. So we really want to thank him for coming on. So without further ado, let's get to our guest segment. So we'd like to welcome our guests for this episode. We're really, really pumped and hyped for this. So I think we're really excited for this topic. So I'd like to welcome Mohammed from Canadian Tax Heroes. Mohammed, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me. How are you guys? We're good. We're good. We're, we're excited to have you. We, we wanted to do this topic and you came highly recommended. One thing we do have to tell our listeners right off the bat is, you know, this is going to be for educational reasons. You do have to talk to your own accountant, you know, look into your own personal scenario. You can't treat this as legal or professional advice, but I do think this is going to be really educational. The second thing is obviously the majority of our listeners are from Canada. We are sponsored by the Canadian Association. So that is the focus, but there are going to be things we talk about that are more general or apply to you in your country, you just kind of have to figure out what's more relevant to you. Like we talk about RRSPs at some point during this, you know, registered retirement savings. And in the States, for example, that's like a 401k or something equivalent to that. So you just have to look at whatever your equivalent is and kind of talk to your local account. But I do think it's going to be beneficial for all of our listeners. But Mo, is it okay if we call you Mo? Is that what you go by or what do you yeah. prefer? Mo, Mohammed, whichever you prefer. Awesome. So why don't you give us a little bit about your background? You know, who do you work with? Who do you enjoy working with the most? And what services do you offer? For sure. So I'm a partner at Tax Heroes. It's an accounting firm that operates fully remotely, but we're based in Toronto. And the main thing we really target is just proactive tax planning. So we have the typical accounting and tax services that most other accounting firms have. But one way we really differentiate ourselves is, is through proactive tax planning and just managing uh, finances for your business, right? So I have about a decade of tax experience. I started off at a really big tax firm, and we really focused on just ultra high net worth people there. So just billionaires, basically. And <laughs> With a B there. 
to be clear. <laughs> Billionaires. You know, it sounds great, but really when you're doing such specialized tax planning and like such unique things, it's, it, was, it wasn't really applicable. And so it actually triggered me to kind of leave and work with, you know, regular business owners and regular professionals. And so I joined a smaller firm, spent a couple of years there. And I just noticed that a lot of accounting firms weren't really being proactive. So we actually ran into this one situation where uh, a person had passed away, you know, uh, with a large amount of, of wealth, about 10 million. And it was their estate coming to us two years after. And out of that 10 million, the family was only going to keep around 3 million. So there's 70%. Yes. It's really shocking. So about 70% of that was going to go to tax. And it's just crazy to think about, you know, what you do, you build wealth for your family so that you can leave them in a better position. And 70% of that time, all that wealth you created is just going to tax. Can my dad get your contact mm-hmm. info right now? <laughs> <laughs> but it's actually better if your kids get yeah, my contact yeah. info. <laughs> <laughs> no, so... It, the sad situation is he really could have passed away with zero dollars of tax if there was proactive tax planning. And it wasn't that he didn't have very qualified accountants working with him throughout his life. He really did. It's just no one really sat down with them and spent that time to to educate them on what's going to happen what, when you pass away. What kind of taxes will you face? What things can you do now? And so that was really what triggered starting Tax Heroes. So me and a call, former colleague of mine, we joined forces basically and started Tax Heroes. And that's really what we focus on. 50% of our clients are uh, profession, like medical professionals, dental professionals, lawyers, psychologists. And then the other 50 are other things like agency owners, real estate investors, other types of entrepreneurs. That's awesome. That, that's really, that's impressive. Okay. And so you're talking right now, like like one of us saying is is mainly most of the people are oral surgeons, right? There we have some of the people who are not oral surgeons, but most people are listening are oral surgeons. So we don't really receive any formal business or accounting education either in dental or medical school. So what would be you? What would you say is the best way for someone to start learning about these fields? So I was actually surprised to hear that because I thought you guys did learn a little bit about, I guess, how to run a practice or maybe how to manage a practice, no? no? Mo, I did 14 years of school after high school and at no point did I ever have like a business class, an accounting tap, a class, yeah, HR class. Yeah, unless you chose one in undergrad to like, to take, that would be the only reason. Yeah, yeah like we don't know the CPP, EI, payroll. I still don't know because uh, I don't own an office. I, yeah. Yeah, so Oscar's an associate, so he just gets a paycheck. I'm an owner, yeah. so I had to learn all these things from scratch because I never had a job where I had these things. He means his so. wife learned it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no no comment, no comment. <laughs> so yeah, no, Mo, we have no formal training. So that's what we, we need you to teach us. So that's crazy. They just throw you in the fire. Like I find that that's pretty crazy. But I think when you think about business and accounting, those are two different things. And when you think about accounting and tax specifically, there's a question of how much do you really want to learn and how much do you really want to invest in learning this versus, you know, hiring the experts. And I'm not just saying that because whatever, I'm an expert or whatever, I have my self-interest in this. It's really, is it a good use of your time, right? So when I think about dental hygiene, like, sure, I'd love to learn a little bit about dental hygiene, but is it a good use of my time or should I, you know, leave that to dental professionals, oral surgeons, whoever is the case? So I think the first thing you need to decide is how much you really want to learn. And then from there, it's where do you get that information? And 
when you want to get that information, do you want to put effort to it or do you want things that don't really require effort? So there's, I guess there's, there's interests I have that I don't really want to put effort into, but you know, I'll follow someone on Twitter if they're talking about this thing. I'll listen to a podcast on a car ride, YouTube videos, things like that, that don't really require much effort. But if I really want to get to know things, then I'll read a book because I don't, I don't just I haven't found anything to substitute the knowledge a book gives. And it's really the same in accounting and tax. There's nothing to really substitute a book. So if you really don't want to put too much effort, but you want a good, a good understanding of the frameworks, how it applies to you, how to be proactive, there's lots of people on Twitter. I know you had Ben Felix on the show, who's great, and his team at PWL. Myself, shameless plug. <laughs> a lot of good YouTubers. And But if you really want to put in some effort and to learn about accounting and tax, then there's actually a really good book for professional people with professional corporations. It's by this group, a financial advisory group. I think they're called TPC Financial. And they have a really good book that kind of just outlines all the tax considerations for people with professional corporations. Now, that's accounting and tax, but I think business is another story. And business is something I'm trying to continue to learn about despite having a business degree and everything. And I, I don't think school really truly lets you encompass what it means to run a business, what it means to run a practice. And, and so on, in the business aspect, I continue to learn every day, right? And so one of the books, and I've, I've gotten a lot of recommendations about this book specifically, is Traction. And one person said it takes you like a year, six months to a year to read this book, because when you read a chapter, you really want to apply each chapter to your business. So it takes like a month to go through each chapter. So, and, and that's exactly what I'm doing to learn more about business myself. Makes sense. So what do you think about implementing a plan? So how can we implement an effective and efficient accounting system for our business? Because, you know, for Oscar, he might be an associate, so he needs to find an accountant just for his corporation or to figure out what to do. For me, being now a new owner, I need to figure out accounting for the whole business. So what's the best way to, to get this going and start implementing an effective accounting system for a business? So I think you're right in that you, you made that distinction between Oscar and yourself. I think you have to understand your specific situation and think, do I need an, like a full-blown a full blown accounting system? Or do I, can I just kind of manage it once a year? Do I need to know my monthly outflows, my monthly, my monthly inflows, how much tax I'm expected to pay? Or is that kind of something I can just do once a year, maybe save some costs there? It doesn't have a huge impact to my living. And I think maybe if you're an associate, Maybe it doesn't, but maybe it's still relevant to know, right? So it depends on what exactly your goals are, what exactly how financially involved you want to be. If you have a practice, then in, in, in usually you do want to have a, a more kind of effective and efficient accounting system, right? And so I think there's three thresholds for this. The first one is just being compliant. The second one is the second and third one are being basically analytical and then uh, applying and recommending and testing. And so the main one, which people who are just kind of on a practice, they don't want to really grow. They just kind of want to keep it stress-free and they just need to really be compliant. What does that mean? That means run payroll, pay your bills, you know, manage your processes, things like that. And I've seen some dental professionals do this very manually. So the to my surprise, this was shocking to me. They were manually on paper calculating payroll, CPP. I was personally impressed. I'm like, this is impressive. And, and, and so that's not what you want to do. Well, if, it, if you enjoy it, sure. But I think there, there is a better use of, use of <laughs> There we go. 
And so there are better ways. There are a lot of cloud applications that, you know, a lot of more modern firms are adopting. So you can have, you don't have to write checks. You don't have to manually calculate payroll. You just kind of put in the, the, the payments. You don't have to uh, do your, do manual bookkeeping. And that's great. So once you're kind of compliant on the cloud system, it does cost a little more money because you are using different sort of applications, but that's a, a great way to kind of cover your compliance, right? Then if you want to really grow, you know, make changes, increase income, you do kind of have to unlock the next two steps. And what does that mean? It means once you have that data, are you just kind of doing anything with it? Are you just sitting with that data or are you actually making decisions? Are you analyzing it? Are you looking at, are most of your customers recurring or are most of them new? Are they, what, what's the average revenue per visit? What are your high seasons, your low seasons? How can you kind of rearrange it to, to, to put some more into the low seasons versus the high seasons? What, and then again, that comes with the application. What kind of targeting are you doing? Sending out flyers, calling customers for appointments. And so step number two and step number three are for people who really kind of become more efficient, become more effective, want to grow even further. And it really depends on what your situation is. Maybe you don't even need the full compliance system, but if you have a practice, you most likely do. And if you have a compliance system, do you want to grow to the next level? And are you really analyzing the data? Are you really kind of implementing changes to your business? Yeah, it's funny. As a business owner, I can comfortably say that I'm definitely in the compliance level. <laughs> You're like, I manually do payroll right I'm, now. <laughs> I don't mean, I do as, as, you, as you said, the wife may or may not have figured that it works in payroll, but I'm definitely in the just trying to keep my head above water and stay compliant. But, <laughs> but Wendell can't wait for this call to end. He wants to go finish doing his payroll. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but it's funny because even as I'm hearing you say that, I'm like, wow, that's so true. I'm, I'm sure most practices aren't doing that, but it is such a waste of information that you have, right? Like if you can analyze that, you can optimize your own business. So it's true. Like that really would take a business to the next level. That's great. Talking about taking a business to the next level, what is considered good debt versus bad debt? So I think people have different answers on this, but generally I think there's three criteria. One is if it's if it's necessary, two, if it's reasonable, and three, if there's like a clear path of repayment. So if I think about what's the most common debt, you know, any kind of dental or medical professional will be facing, it's it's typically school debt, right? Right when you finish school, that that debt is typically it's reasonable because you know it's not crazy unreasonable in comparison to the income that's expected. It's necessary because you need it to become a dental professional, a medical professional. And then it is also, there's a clear path to repay because of the increased saving, the increased earnings from becoming a dental or medical professional, right? Then there's more, some that are more iffy. So if I think of some that, let's just say some that are more, some that are bad debt, right? And so if I think of something that's clearly bad debt, it's maybe borrowing to go on vacation, right? Or borrowing to for clothing, things like yeah. that, right? You're so, starting to describe Oscar's life. I like that. Hey, I don't borrow for my vacations. <laughs> no, he doesn't borrow. He doesn't borrow. He spends, but I guess he doesn't borrow. <laughs> I have to go traveling together one time. So in, in, in that case, is it really necessary? It may not be. And then there's some sort of gray area. So mortgages, I think the question with mortgages is, is it reasonable? Usually if it is reasonable, then it is good debt, right? So in Toronto, it's not then. <laughs> Well, it depends on your situation, right? If you're if you're buying, if you keep overbuying, then I would say that's not good debt, right? I think one of the the biggest gray areas a lot of people have are for investments, and some people may say, you know, that's fine, that's good debt, and then other people would say it's bad debt. 
personally, I don't necessarily see it as necessary. I think uh, you can grow your wealth without debt. So I would say generally it's bad debt, but it also depends on, you know, what you're buying, what you're doing with that debt, how much debt you're taking out. So that's my personal opinion on good debt versus bad debt. And do you guys have any different opinions on that? I mean, that seems to be, that's kind of the class examples I was always given, which is, you know, you, the best thing you can ever spend on is your education. So if you take out student loans or, or you pay, you know, 40 grand a year to go to dental school, well, that's good debt because you're, you're getting training, you're getting education, and technically your expected income once you graduate should be higher than it was before. Whereas the classic one I was always told is, you know, when you graduate, don't use your line of credit to go then buy like a BMW or like a Porsche or something like that, because that's just bad debt appreciate and it's not actually adding anything to your career or net worth. So it seems to be in line with what I was taught. But as I'll mention, I was taught this by like my family, not by like professionals in an institution. It's not like we were taught this in school. I don't know how UFT, if it was any different for you, Oscar. Like absolutely not. It's the same thing. Most of fi- the very limited financial literacy that I got was for my family, right? They were both dental professionals and they kind of said, oh, this is how you do it. But in terms of formal education or training or looking back at like, wow, we just went through that much years of school and weren't really taught anything tangible where I would say, oh, that that was really useful in terms of financial business, anything like that. So when it comes to a practice, um, I think the biggest thing is when you're going to take debt, is it going to make you money in the future when you invest in your practice? If it's not going to, then you should look at that. Is it going to make me a better surgeon, more efficient? But if it's not, then that's debt. That's probably debt. Yeah, I think that's a good way too. Because yeah, sometimes you invest in something that's not necessarily going to get you more money in the future, but if it makes your life as a surgeon better or your patient care better, it's still good debt. You're doing it for a reason, right? Like you're not doing it for your enjoyment. If it's just going to make your career smoother, then that's great. But if you're going to buy things that you're not going to use, then that's money. That's not third boat, not good debt. Yeah. (laughs) The second boat is fine, but the third boat... Yeah, is second boat, you need one for your wife, you need one for you. The third boat, useless. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mo, the next question I would have here is probably the most important question that we need when we graduate, start working in something that we don't know anything about. Probably one of the most... We asked our listeners to send in questions. This is probably one of the most popular questions we got, which is, what is incorporation? What is the good? What is the bad? When are we supposed to do this? And just because... Not going to business school, not knowing anything about accounting or taxes, and all of a sudden we're working, you start getting a paycheck for the first time, and then someone tells you, hey, by the way, you should be incorporated. Like, why aren't you incorporated? You should no longer be Wendell Mascarenhas. You should be Dr. Wendell Mascarenhas Dentistry Professional Corporation, and like your whole life is supposed to change. So can you explain incorporation and when we're supposed to do this and why? For sure. So incorporation, simply put, people have this idea that corporations are this big company with thousands of employees, it's really just a form of doing business, right? So you can do business where you're taxed personally, that's called a sole proprietorship, or you could set up a separate entity called a corporation and the business runs through the corporation. And so why would you do that unnecessary act of kind of setting up a separate entity to run a a corporation? The main reason is because there are certain, there are certain tax benefits with doing that, right? And so I think I can allude to some of those later, but I think one of the key ideas is that understanding that your corporation is not you and whatever is in your corporation, you can't just spend it personally. You have to kind of understand that that's the corporation's money. And if you want to spend that money personally, you have to pay yourself from the corporation and that's not your money. But it's generally just a form of doing business. 
and there are kind of there are certain tax benefits with doing that. And is there a specific time when someone should incorporate? Like, is there a a threshold of working or income or salary or when is usually a good time to think about incorporating? So it it all comes to the the question of how much your business earns versus how much you spend personally. That's the key question to really determine. And to to really answer that, you need to know first what the tax rates are. So when you look at the tax rates on a corporation, the corporation uh, pays 12% uh, tax on its business income up to the first 500,000. So after 500,000, it's paying about 26 and a half. This is Ontario. Different provinces have slightly different percentages. And so personally, if you're even, if you had a sole proprietorship and you were earning that business income, after at a certain point, you'd be taxed about 54%. So I think it's after you earn 235000 each dollar after you're taxed at 54%. So if you're comparing 12% to 54%, there's a huge deferral. But that's you only get that 12% if you're not paying yourself, if you're keeping it completely in the corporation. If you pay yourself, then you're subject to those very high rates. So the benefit then becomes how much can you earn versus how much can you keep in your corporation and not spend personally. And if there's a huge discrepancy, the tax savings, the tax deferrals is usually worth incorporating and you can really benefit. It's a nice way of explaining it because I think people just think about the tax, but what you're saying, which is correct, is that if you made $500,000 in corporation and paid yourself $500,000 and then spent it personally, they didn't do anything. You just paid your accountant you double. You paid them for personal taxes <laughs> yeah, and you paid you them paying... for incorporated taxes. Yeah. So thanks for paying yeah, me a little exactly. more. That, that, that's, 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 that's all that is, right? So you're right. So really, you have to have retained savings in your corporation to make this worth it. Otherwise, you're not even benefiting from that tax break. You have to budget and know how much you're going to be roughly using in that year. And then be like, is this delta big enough that it makes it worth it? Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. And I think one of the biggest problems, to be honest, is people hear about it and they may actually incorporate prematurely. I see this as such a big common problem, not just with uh, medical professionals, dental professionals, but just anyone. They hear about incorporation. They hear it has tax benefits. They're like, I'm just going to incorporate. And so I think one of the key things to, to remember is that even if you have retained savings, there are other vehicles available. Like you can invest in RSP and that can delay incorporation. You can get just as much benefit from an RSP as you can from incorporating even more benefit. And so you might actually want to take advantage of the RSP first. Or some people be like, oh, for personal expenses, I don't need that much, but I will need to pay back my debt and I want to pay it back as soon as possible. And student debt is considered a personal expense. So you need to pay yourself personally in order to pay off that student debt very quickly. And so in this case, in those cases, you may actually want to defer incorporation to a few more years. Speaking of another type of kind of incorporation, another possible thing that you'll do is what is a holding company and when is it normally created and and why do we actually create one? Because that's the next step. We're talking about incorporation and you finally like eventually kind of understand, okay, I'm supposed to incorporate. And then you're like, finally, I figured it out and I'm on my routine. Like, and then someone comes a holding company. You're like, what? Yeah. What am I holding? Says, do you have a holding <laughs> company? And you're like, what? Hold company? What does this even mean? So yeah, what, what is this holding company and why is this created and when? So I, I can I can tell you're very knowledgeable because you said Holco and not many people know about Holco. So Holco <laughs> is just the, I guess the, the nickname or the short form for holding company. And you might hear a lot of accountants say it. And a Holco is just a new corporation that holds investments. So it can either hold real estate, it can hold securities, it can hold shares of another corporation. And there's 
four four reasons why you want to do that, right? So the first reason is your medical professional corporation or your dental professional corporation, it may be restricted in what it can do. So it there's certain restrictions that says it can only earn income ancillary to, you know, its practice, right? And so that's generally interpreted to mean you can buy securities, but you can't buy, for instance, rental real estate. And so if you wanted to buy rental real estate, you would need to set up another corporation to do that. Other reasons are liability. So let's say you have that rental real estate in that whole co and a tenant were to sue you. That tenant can go, can only go after the assets of the corporation. It can go after your personal assets. Well, I guess there is some kind of case law around there and stuff. So it's not as simple as that, but that's the general idea. Then you have income splitting opportunities. So you can make share other shareholders. You can make other owners of your corporation besides you, besides yourself. And in some cases, you may be able to pay them some income from your corporation. There are some restrictions around this, but again, there is some planning around this that is available. And so that's another reason why you might want to have a holding corporation to be able to kind of do income splitting. And then lastly, there's a lot of estate planning. So reducing tax at death, being able to transfer assets to your children in a tax efficient manner. Those things are available with the holding corporation. They might be a lot more difficult with, you know, a professional corporation. I got a, sorry, sorry, I got a question about the hold co. When you move money from, let's say, your dental corp to your hold co, when you move it from your hold co, I mean, from your dental co to your hold co, do you have to pay to move that? Like, does, does it have to be a formal transaction or can you physically just move the money from one to the other? So you can um, physically move the money to the other. You can also, you don't even have to move the money to the other. So sometimes when clients get a little bit tricky, they'll have their, you know, their professional corporation pay for expenses of their holding company. And so it just, although there's no formal money transfer between the two corporations, it's kind of just like in-kind loan, right? So there doesn't need to be a physical transfer, but generally to keep things clean, you do want to transfer money from one corporation to the other. Now, uh, the other question I get a lot about that is, do I eventually have to repay the loan? And technically, yes, all loans do need to be repaid. But it can remain outstanding for as long as you want. There are no issues with corporation to corporation loans. And then some people, you know, when they when they stop practicing, they might actually combine and merge those two corporations together and it kind of just wipes away the debt. So there are that's not that's not a huge concern if you have a like a massive loan outstanding. It's not really uh, something to worry about because I do have some clients that do worry about that. And it's just understand that it's manageable and it's not and there are ways to to kind of deal with that loan. So what what a good way of thinking it'd be, okay, I'm graduating, I'm working now, I'm starting to make money, focus on debt, pay off debt, RRSP, TVSA, start my savings. Okay, my RRSP is looking, my debt's coming down, I'm almost done. I'm looking at personal expenses versus how much I make, maybe I need to get incorporated now for the first time. Now I'm incorporated, I'm making money, I have retained earnings in my corporation and hey, I'm not doing anything with it. I actually don't need it for my personal expenses because I'm stable now or I'm not spending a lot or I'm making a lot. Now I want to invest some money. So now it's time to look into the whole code. Is that kind of like the logical sequence and progression of what people go through? Yeah, that's essentially the playbook. And I think it, there is also some personal preference to it. So some people say, you know what, I actually don't want to pay off my debt as soon as possible. I'm happy to kind of just let it stay and I'll just pay the minimum payments over the couple of years. Some people say, I don't want to invest in any marketable security. So ignore my RSP, ignore my TFSA. I'm 
100% real estate. And so in that case, you can't necessarily buy real estate in your RSP and TFSA. So they, they skip that part. They move to the whole core right away because their dental or medical professional can't invest in real estate. So there, that is the general playbook, but then ev- everyone has their own preferences of, of what they like to do. So I think you kind of answered this one, but investing money, but in the holding corporate DPC, when it comes to market and real estate investments, basically you can invest in the market in your DPC, so Dentistry Professional Corporation or Holdco, but when it comes to real estate, it has to be in your holding co. Yeah. And, and generally there are advantages to investing even marketable securities in your holding company. It's just a matter of, is it worth it depending on how much, like, you know, if it's a couple thousand dollars. It's probably not worth the additional cost of setting up a holding corporation. But, you know, those four benefits I mentioned, those, for those reasons, you might actually want to even buy marketable securities in a whole co. It's just a kind of a matter of is it worth the cost or not? Yeah. So we're going to go back to the residents because this is an important question. We talked about incorporating a lot, kind of why they should do it or when it should do it. But what are the actual steps involved in incorporating? So the steps are, there's quite a few legal steps and there's a lot of lawyers who like are very familiar with this process and they kind of just take care of this for you. So you don't necessarily have to worry, but in terms of what those steps are, it typically involves, you know, just understanding how you want to structure your, your dental or uh, dental professional corporation. So who's going to own shares, who's allowed to own shares. So technically you have to own the voting shares. You may have some family members own the non-voting shares. You can't have another corporation own your professional corporation. So it just has to be you directly or or some of your family members. Uh, You have to have certain restrictions on what it can do. And you have to lay out those restrictions in the articles. It's kind of like the birth certificate of the corporation. After incorporating, you need to kind of get this, I think, certificate of authorization from your college. Then from there, you typically want to open bank accounts for your corporation, and that's going to be separately your corporation's bank account. And you want to make sure all business or dental related cash flows come into your corporation's bank account and all business related expenses come out of your corporation's bank account and credit card. It's funny because you, you lay it out there and someone who's incorporated, every time you mentioned a step, I was like, oh yeah, I remember when I did that. Oh yeah, I remember Did that. you forget? But at the, at the time, it is a complete le- leap of faith. You have to find a good lawyer and a good account. Because as you said, they were doing all these things like you're signing articles of incorporation. I had no idea what I was doing. I'm No, I was just bl- signing, praying that this is all what it's supposed to be. Like it's, su- <laughs> it's such a leap of faith. And you really want to have someone that's experienced with working with medical and dental professionals because obviously it's a little bit different than, than other professions out there. Yeah. And I think that that's actually a great time to start talking about tax strategy because once you start that, you have to think about, wow, am I going to pay myself salary? And if I am, I start need to do, I need to start doing payroll or am I going to pay myself dividends? And then other sorts of questions like, do I have to register for HST, things like that. So, so speaking of salary and dividends, what should we pay ourselves? This is a great question. And I don't think there's a straight answer. And the idea, there's this idea of tax that there's tax integration. What that means is that whether you pay yourself a salary, whether you pay yourself a dividend, it should basically theoretically be the same thing. Now, in actuality, there are some differences, right? And so what are those differences? So some of them are qualitative, right? So salary generates RSP room. And so if you care about investing in your RSP, it's generally a good idea to pay salary. 
With salary, you're required to contribute to CPP, the Canada Pension Plan. And the CPP is basically a program where you contribute uh, whenever you have salary. And then once you turn as early as 60, you can start withdrawing it and you are taxed on it. And so it's sort of this guaranteed income that you get. And you only can do that through salary. And some people actually want to avoid it because it is a substantial amount. It's about $7,500 a year this year. Some people are like, you know what, I'd rather invest my my $7,500 how I do it versus how the government do, does it. If you have childcare expenses and you are the lower, incur, lower income earner, because you can kind of choose what your salary is from your corporation, then you typically want to pay yourself salary. And so dividends, if there's certain tax attributes your corporation has. They're, they're called GRIP, RDTOH, CDA. Those generally make it preferential to pay yourself a dividend. And so it depends on your situation and your preferences. But I know you had Ben Felix, his team at PWL actually did a very great paper on this. It's like 40 pages on really what is it better to do, salary or dividends. And they looked at it during the long run. And it, it made very, it was very well done. And it kind of, as a general summary, like I, I don't, I hope none of your listeners actually read the 40 page paper because that would be a terrible idea. But um, the general recommendation was to, in the earlier part of your business, to start paying off yourself salary, build the RSP room, contribute to CPP, you have less investment income, and then, and you're more likely to have children at that time. And then as your kind of business progresses, you you earn more investment income through your corporation, then you actually start paying yourself a dividend. And I think that's a great long-term strategy to kind of take. But again, there are year-to-year considerations taken consideration. That makes sense, actually. Another super, super common question we got, and I'm sure you get this all the time, is if you are incorporated, should you still bother with the RRSP or TFSA at all? Like a lot of people have conflicting opinions and all people are told one way, no point to the RSP or TFSA and other people say, no, you should, it's really good. So where do you come down on this? What do you analyze and how do you make the decision with your clients? It's so funny because the, I'll tell my clients the benefits of still doing it and they're like, no, 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 it doesn't make sense. <laughs> no, if you're wrong, I know more. Yeah. Welcome um, to our world. <laughs> um, I think so. Generally, it is a good idea. Like if you're investing in marketable securities and you're not one of those, I'm going to invest in real estate and only real estate, then it is a good idea to contribute to your RSP and your TFSA. And there's a couple of good reasons why. Number one, you're not paying tax immediately when you through your TFSA or your RSP versus a corporation. Once you have realized income, you are paying tax immediately. Second thing is there are certain tax consequences when your corporation earns more more than $50,000 of passive income or investment income. And with that, uh, some people want to make sure that their passive income is less than $50,000 and RSP and TFSAs are good ways to do that. And generally, you're, you can contribute to your RRSP from your corporation and not really pay anything. So it's almost like you can transfer money directly to your RSP. And just think of it like this. Let's say you've earned $100,000 in the year and you want to put that full amount to your RSP. You would be paying corporate tax at, let's say, 12%, right? And instead, you're going to pay yourself a salary. So your corporation now has $0 of income because they pay the full $100,000 of income as salary. You now have personal income of $100,000, but you're going to take that $100,000 and then you're going to contribute to your RSP 
that gives you a deduction on your personal tax. So your corporation has pays no tax, you personally pay no tax, and you've effectively effectively transferred a hundred thousand dollars from your corporation to your RSP, right? So, and that's what you meant about how the RSP you you kind of avoided paying the tax in it versus in your corporation you have to pay the tax right away. Ex- well, that that is what I meant by that is uh, income. So if I earn let's say a hundred dollars of interest income in your in your corporation you will have to pay tax on that in your corporation but in your rsp you won't. oh i see what you're saying yeah but this one is just a it's efficient way to transfer money from your corporation to your rsp makes a lot of sense and what is that the same sorry is that the same for the tfsa because the tfsa is post-tax income that you have to invest in it it's just so you wouldn't it's a tax you wouldn't get the deduction yeah that's right. Yeah. So with the, with the TFSA, you would have to pay that tax, but again, it helps reduce the fifty thousand dollars of income. And also, when you retire, one of the benefits you get is something called old age pension. is basically a guaranteed payment, so long as your income is below a certain amount. And if you need that, like let's say you need a certain amount of money in retirement, and if you were to pay it from your corporation, you would they would push you over that limit. A TFSA can kind of help supplement your income to not push you over that limit so that you can keep all your OAS. And so everything has been kind of trying to save money or defer taxes. So what are some common tax saving strategies? So tax saving strategies is really just a scale, you know, your basic ones, your mediocre ones, and your advanced ones. And I think a lot of them are, are specific to your situation. But if I have to think about the common ones and the ones like everyone should be doing, typically the most important thing I find is registered accounts. So that's contributing to your RRSP. And I, I hate all these acronyms and everything because it makes things so unnecessarily complicated, but there are a lot of tax benefits. Your TFSA, your RESP, your new account if you don't own a home, FHSA. And even within those registered accounts, so few people take advantage of them, but there's actually planning within those accounts. So you might be thinking, hmm, do I want to do a regular RSP contribution or a spousal RSP contribution? And in a lot of cases, a spousal RSP con- contribution without getting to nitty gritty might be more beneficial. Do I want to take advantage of the home buyer's plan? Am I optimizing my RESP contributions for my child in the best way? So I think Nothing compares to really taking advantage of registered accounts. And as many advisors as you may have, as whether it's tax, financial advisors, many people just don't take advantage of these to the extent that they should. And really nothing beats these out from from my experience. From there, there's different other things. So you could potentially write off some of your home office expenses. You can, as a common strategy, I, I'll say, I don't like to say I've been pitching, but a lot of my clients have been doing is that they'll go to conferences in places they want to take vacation. So part of the travel expenses can be deductible, incorporating, you know, accruing six months, accruing a bonus at the end of the year and not paying it till six months later. Very simple things like these are kind of your more basic ones, spousal tuition transfer. If you're uh, buying a home, there's kind of this double dipping strategy with RRSPs and FHSAs. If you're looking to finance a kid's education. Uh, there's various things you could do. There's a trust you can set up and take advantage of income splitting. Uh, you can do tuition transfers. Then you like 
and we're kind of diving into a little more. Of yeah, I was like, there's all, like, we're, I'm just taking notes. Yeah, I was like, this like, is like, where we're past basic. I'm not here. even going to stop you. I was just like, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you get, there are more advanced ones. Like, I guess when you're nearing like, like the end of your career, you might want to consider an estate freeze, which is basically the strategy that the person, the earlier example would have been Beneficial. able to kind of, yeah, where he would have not paid the 70% tax if he kind of did that. Employ family members. I know you guys have probably heard that one pitched a lot. As long as they're doing reasonable work, salary paid to them is deductible. And if they're in the lower income, lower income brackets, it works. If you're very charitable, you might want to donate stocks instead of and stocks of public companies instead of uh, cash because there is a benefit. You don't have to pay the capital gain tax if you do that. Um, and the, and, the, and what I find is people do get a little bit charitable. So, and they may be making cash donations personally, and it may not even make sense. It may actually be better to just make them through the corporation. So I think it's also a lot of questions are who should do it, right? So should you own a car personally or should you own it in the corporation? Like these are also important questions to consider. And then there's very complicated planning. And like these, these things really require a lot of like all these things with consultation of your accountant, but you might hear like various income splitting strategies. You may hear about capital gain stripping, flow through shares. Don't worry, we're going to get through all of this. Don't worry, we're going to we're going to go <laughs> you're jumping the gun now. <laughs> yeah, you're jumping the gun for all our listeners. Like, wait, wait, I do want to know about all that. Don't worry, we're we're going to. I mean, let's start off with the easy one, or not easy one, but kind of basic one that we get all the time. Is can you explain this home office thing? Like, you know, people say I write off my home office. Like, what does that mean? Like, how do you actually go about doing that? And and what is that calculation? What's the benefit? So if so, there's a little more nuance to this than than a lot of people give 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 thought to. But generally, the idea of a home office expense is I can take my home expenses, my mortgage interest, my property taxes, my you know utilities, all these things, and based on what part of the home I'm using exclusively for this home office, I can write off that portion of my home of my home expenses off. Now this really it typically only applies to certain people, so people who work from home, and then certain categories of expenses like mortgage interest and and certain other ones, they only apply for people who actually have a business. So if you have, you know, a resident who's just earning employment income, they may be more restricted into what they can do. Now, even with that, people who have a business, there are restrictions on who can claim home office expenses. So if you you know, if you, let's just say an example, if you work at an office and you go to the office, you do all the work, you might catch up on work on the weekend and, and you do that from home. Technically, that doesn't qualify for a home office expense. To, to, to deduct your home office expense, it either, you either need to meet clients there and not many people are meeting clients or it needs to be exclusively used as your principal place of business, right? And so, what is what is a principal? Wah, place wah, wah, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like, like there goes our. No. There goes, yeah, yeah, there goes our. Everyone's right, like scribbling that, not doing yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> well, in in some cases you can. So they looked at a person who has, you know, who rents an office, and and, and there, there's a couple cases on this, and who does that work? They catch up from home on their work on the weekend, and that didn't qualify. But there was a case where there was a plumber or some sort of other person who did work at different locations, and then. When they when they came home, they did sort of administrative work like bookkeeping, invoicing, billing, things like that. 
And so in that court case, they actually allowed it. And they said, that is your principal place of business because you're running the operations, the administrative operations from there. And so a lot of a lot of people, including myself, take the view that a lot of, depending, again, it depends on your specific situation, but a lot of people can deduct their home office expenses. Um, and this is specifically for self-employed people with sole proprietorships. If you think about a corporation, technically there's no restrictions on how many places they can rent out as long as it's reasonable and it's for purposes of earning income. But you could, I can imagine the CRA and there's no case law on this specifically, but the CRA kind of taking that same perspective of, you know, you're going to the office and you catch up on the weekend. Maybe that will not qualify, but a person who's kind of doing their billing and things like that, that would qualify. So I got a question of that. What happens when you sell your home? So generally, the CRA treats it as as its finest part of there. When you because let's just step back, I guess when you sell a home, typically you have to pay a capital gain on it. But there's this rule that basically exempts it, called your principal residence exemption. That basically says as long as you've lived there, if you live there every year, you basically don't have to pay tax on it. And generally, if it's ancillary, the term is I think ancillary to the overall home, they typically ignore it, right? But if they are considering, they are looking at that rule more closely and they may kind of change their policy in the future on that. But generally the rule is if it's ancillary, CRA's position is they'll treat the whole home as still your primary residence. Exactly. So along those lines of expenses, you kind of touched on it just briefly is for like car ownership, would you do that corporately? Would you lease it? Would you do it personally? What are your, like, what's your advice on that? So I think there's two things. There's one is, would you lease or would you own? And then the other is corporation versus personal. In terms of lease versus own, I think if you do the analysis, right, it, it's not a huge difference financially. And so it, I think the qualitative factors, like do you want to manage maintenance? Do you want to own a car? Do you want to have to give a car back? Are you going to drive more than the lease limit or whatever the case is? I think those are the main considerations to consider rather than the financial. In terms of own versus a corporation versus versus personally, there are a couple of factors to consider, just like with the own and the lease one. But the general idea is if you earn, use it, your vehicle at least 50% or more for business, it's typically better to own to the corporation. Now, a lot of people have, let's say, corporate vehicles that, you know, let's say they're spending 40%, 30% of the car's life for personal use. And a lot of what a lot of people don't realize is that you're actually personally taxed for the cor- the use, the personal use of your corporate vehicle. And it's a very complex calculation, uh, but people don't really consider that when they buy a car. And I think that is an important consideration. Other important considerations are when you, if you're keeping a vehicle log, that's mandatory. And one specific planning that's available right now is buying a car before the end of 2023. So you only have a couple of weeks available. There's a, there's a potential opportunity where you can just write off that whole car up to, a, they have these maximums. So it's about 36,000 for a regular car and then 61,000 for certain electric vehicles. But let's just use a Tesla as an example, right? I have $100,000 of income in my corporation. I'm going to buy a Tesla for 80K. I will be able to write off 61K of my income this year. So my leftover income that I'm going to be taxed on is 39K. And that's a really huge opportunity. It's only available to the end of this year where you can just immediately expense the vehicle. And so 
I don't know if you noticed this, but I've not been noticing a lot more Teslas on the road. And I have to think my neighbor just got one. I feel feel like he knows this already. (laughs) (laughs) And this actually isn't just uh, vehicles. It's actually a lot of capital items. So let's say you're buying very expensive equipment. Typically, the rule is you have to depreciate that equipment over time. But because of the new immediate expensing rules that expire very soon, if you're incorporated, if you're not incorporated, then you have until the end of 2024. But you can write off that full equipment purchase this year on your taxes. So some people are really investing a lot in capital to write off a lot of income on their taxes. Before so I guess they're, they're eliminating that rule, though, starting next year. They changed the law, I guess. Yeah. So they, they only provided this benefit for, I think it was like a two or three year period. And so that goes away January 1st, 2024. People are just buying jets just because I want to write it off. (laughs) It's crazy. (laughs) So then what about kind of getting into the bleaker side of what can go wrong if people aren't careful? What is the difference between tax avoidance and tax evasion? So I think there's really three three categories of tax. um, How do I say this? I guess there's three categories of, of, of not paying tax, right? So one is legitimate tax savings. That's when you're following the rules as they're intended to be, something like investing in RRSP or TFSA, and you're not, you're not, you're doing everything you're supposed to do. Like that, that's the intention of the rule, and you're not paying tax because of it. That's completely legitimate. Then you have tax evasion, which is a clear violation of the rules. So let's say you're supposed to report all your income. That's not, let's say, actually, you are supposed to report all your income. <laughs> Quotations, let's say, it's like, no, I didn't supposed to. <laughs> yeah. uh, and you just don't report it, right? You're clearly violating the rules. And, or let's say you make up deductions that you don't have, right? That's a clear violation of the rules. And that's tax evasion, right? It's, you, it's a violation of the rules. There's, there's penalties for that. Potentially criminal charges. So you really got to watch out. Then you have this third category, which is called tax avoidance. And tax avoidance is when you're technically following the rules, but you're sort of being abusive. Uh, (laughs) And so you might, and just a very, one form of this that's that's been debated if it is anti-avoidance or not, is this concept of capital gain stripping, which I know was one of the questions you guys had. And that's the idea that I'm going to extract money from my corporation. And generally, there's two ways of doing that, salary or dividend. But I'm going to do it in a way to get taxed less than a salary or less than a dividend would be taxed to me. And so uh, technically, I'm doing it from a manner that's completely legal in terms of how the, the law is written, but it could be abusive. And so there's some debate about whether that is abusive or not. Generally, the general consensus is that it's not abusive. But the, I guess the, uh, the avoidance rules, it's called the, the general anti-avoidance rules, GAR, are changing in 2024. And it, it said, and one of the changes that's going to be a lot more strict, they're really, instead of GAR, which typically goes after transactions where the main purpose is to avoid tax, they're going after transactions where one of the main purposes is to avoid tax. And so people are still unsure, like, will capital gains be captured under that or not? Capital gain stripping be captured under that or not? And I think, I guess no one knows, but the general belief is that it, w- it will be captured under. So a lot of people are saying, oh, if you want to do capital gains stripping, do it before the end of this year. Okay. And, and, uh, and it's not meant to cut you off, but just because 
we're going to ask about that anyway. And like we're talking about it right now. So what is capital gain stripping and when should it be done? For sure. Capital gain stripping is basically a strategy to take out money from your corporation. And instead of paying a dividend, which could be taxed at, you know, 48%, you are subject to capital gains, which is taxed at 27% in Ontario, right? Different provinces have slightly different tax rates. And the, like it's it's through an intricate like intricate series of steps, and I won't necessarily bore you with the details. But the general idea is, is that you're kind of selling your company to yourself, and so your company increases in value. So when you sell the company, you, you kind of it appreciates and you get a capital gain. But there, it's a little more complicated than that. And the reason you do it really is if you need. Or if you want a lot of money personally, right? So if you've built up a, a whole bunch of retained earnings in your corporation, but you think, you know what, I want to take this out personally. So I'm either buying a home or I'm going to do something, buying a vacation property. So I need this money personally. That's generally why people do this. And there is some risk to it. I think kind of what I highlighted before, generally people still do it, but there is some risk to it. And th there has been some unfavorable core rulings, but again, if you look at some of the some of the rules, you could say technically it's allowed. And so there again, there is some I guess there is some risk to it, but people are still doing it and, and the general uh, the general consensus is that it's fine. But I guess starting January first, twenty twenty four, it becomes a lot more stringent. So you only have a couple more like if you want to do this, there you only have a couple more weeks left and and even then you gotta be aware of the risk. And is there I would say is there a minimum amount of money where you say you should have the X number of dollars if you're going to capital, like if you're going to do capital stripping? So at the highest rate, you know, 48 versus 27, that's about 21% tax savings. So really, let's just say on $100,000, you're saving 21000 Generally, the fees are around like fifteen to 20000 Is that per transaction or is that per amount? Like if you're doing 100 versus 200, do you pay more to your accountant or no, not necessarily? No, the amount is kind of fixed. And so you're kind of stuck at that 15 to 20, or I've seen some people do it at 12. So I think you, you really have to look at the tax savings versus the cost and the risk and say, is it worth it? And generally people do it 300 plus in my experience. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so tax savings, good. tax evasion, bad. Tax avoidance is kind of like that gray area. I was like, may or may not be in trouble. I mean... In general, though, and one of the most hotly debated topics, I feel like, and the thing that you ask, you ask 10 oral surgeons this, you'll get 12 answers. And that's what can be written off as a business expense. Like, can you give us some things that are like, hey, this is a slam down corporate expense. You should be paying this out of your corp, writing it off. Or, hey, this is a slam dunk, not a corporate expense. Stop doing that. And then maybe one in the middle, which is like, sometimes it applies, sometimes it doesn't. So this is such a funny question because I love, I love the things, I love the things that you guys think of. And like, it's just so funny hearing, you know, the reasoning and stuff like that. It's, it's actually hilarious. So I think when you think about it, there's generally two rules when you find out, to find out if something's deductible. Number one is if it's reasonable. And number two is if it's incurred to earn income, right? So if you think of kind of your surefire things, you know, rent, uh, clinic rent, or even home office rent, right? If you qualify, professional association fees, accounting fees, advertising fees, supplies, like these are kind of guaranteed things, even donations, right? These are kind of things that are guaranteed 
deductions that you don't really need to worry about, right? Then you get into kind of your area where there's kind of a mix. And so let me think of like kind of gray area. So I had one client and he called me and it was, it's so funny. He's like, can I deduct my YouTube premium? And it was like $12 a month. And I'm like, it's not, it's not worth the effort to, to really think about. <laughs> and and uh, I had the conversation regardless because I was interested. And I said, okay, so wh- why is YouTube, why are you buying YouTube premium? And he said, because I watch surgeries and, you know, the ads are distracting and stuff like that. And I'm like, okay, so you could say it's, it, he's uh, a clever guy. He's clever. <laughs> Think of it. I'm like, he's not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that was a clever answer. I'm impressed by this person. No, he said it very well. And I think uh, to some, like some, some extra protection thoughts I, I have is, would you have bought this regardless of if it was for watching surgeries or not? And could you make a benefit? Could you benefit from this personally, even if you didn't use it for your business? Right. And so, those are some general ideas to think about, but overall, he did kind of have some some decent reasoning for it. So I said, that's fine. I, like, I would consider that deductible, but something like suits, right? So people might buy suits and that can be worn outside of work and there's a whole bunch of case law for it. And so it's generally not deductible, but something like scrubs, scrubs are very specialized attire. And so because of that specialized attire, uh, they are actually de- deductible or even like a lab coat, right? So Meals is a popular one. And I think when you think about meals, you have to think of what's the intent of the meals if it's just to eat, <laughs> like for personal consumption, because you have to eat, then they're not deductible. But if it's business related meals, you know, taking out an employee, you know, discussing opening a clinic, things like that, then that could be deductible. I think people get pretty lenient on the meals. So I think when they, whenever you go a meals, Whenever you go through a meals audit, they really ask you for the purpose of each meal and not many people are tracking that. So I think it it is important to track your meals and the purpose of your meals. Yeah, I think you're touching on another question I I was going to have is so kind of goes with both is is what portion of, let's say, meals, but not really meals, I'm not going to go with that. What portion of gifts to, let's say, staff or colleagues or referring dentists can you write off? Um, cause for us, a lot of, we work on a referral basis, right? Patient, dentists send us patients. And then let's say for Christmas, you're buying all these offices gifts or something like that. And then how important is it to keep receipts? Okay. So receipts are very important because they, they do kind of show proof of proof of your transactions, right? You have, you have basically your support for it. Now, a lot of times that they will say, they'll say that, a lot of people who have separate bank accounts for their corporations, which most people should, CRA will sometimes just look at the bank transactions and say it's fine. So it's not end of the world, but generally it is a good idea to to give to make sure you kind of maintain all your receipts and everything and you're keeping them. In terms of gift gift giving, there are certain limitations. I actually forgot what they are. I pulled them up here just to kind of see. But I do, in general, the idea is that they are deductible, but I believe there are limits. Like the amount, uh, like value amount? Exactly, the value amount, right? So I, I think you have to just consider the limits. And if there are two employees, there are other kind of criteria that need to be met. You can only, the, the employee may have to be personally taxed on that gift, except if they qualify during certain exemptions. So I can't give Oscar like an annual $300,000 gift I'm not your card. employee. 
And then he gives me a $400,000 gift well, card. First and then, of all, that's just... <laughs> never going to happen because I lost a hundred grand in that transaction. <laughs> Second yeah, of all. You're too quick on, you're too quick on the <laughs> Hey, Mo, to circle back to meals, if you're buying meals for your employees, do they have to claim that as personal income in Canada? So it depends. Like if they're just regular meals, then they are taxed on that. It's called a taxable benefit. Whereas if it's, just like an overtime meal, then because they're staying late, then they don't, they aren't taxed on that. And generally meals and entertainment are 50% deductible. So if you're, if you're giving, if you're giving meals as a gift, even to, you know, your clients or whatever the case is, you can really only deduct 50% of that as opposed to giving them something else like cash or like a gift card or whatever the case is. Wendell, I'm buying you gift cards. They're going to stay in my house though. <laughs> <laughs> so one question i have is you know it's funny because we talk about all these different things and you know compliance and following the rules and this and that but the reality is at the end of the day it's kind of an honor system i mean you could violate every single rule we're talking about and technically nothing could ever happen or you could get audited and serve criminal charges and prison time lose your license like there's such a range of things that can happen but when it comes to an audit you know how often do those happen? What are the chances they happen? Like, what do they look like? Is there an associated cost? Like, what are the actual chances or what are red flags that they look for maybe for conducting it? So the CRA does two things. They might do a review and they might do an audit. And like to the general population, they look like the same thing, but they are very different. And so a review might be, they're very common for personal tax returns. They look at kind of high areas of inaccuracy. So things like donation receipts, medical expenses, things like that. And they'll just say, hey, send us the support for this. And so that's why you hear a lot of stories of, let's say, someone's mother, someone's grandma getting audited by the CRA. And why aren't they going after these billionaires? Like, and I do sympathize with them. Like, it is pretty crazy. But it, the idea is that they have these review programs and it's almost like it's automated and they just go after high areas of inaccuracy where they see, where they're, they've historically seen a lot of things. And it's kind of automated, very simple. And usually, like, if you want your accountant to respond, if they don't already include it in the fee, it's probably a couple hundred dollars. And as long as you have all the support, it's not that bad, right? Now, if you lied on it, then they, they do reassess you and they apply interest and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. So you got to watch out for these reviews, right? And if you kind of have, and they, if you don't send anything, right, it may also trigger like, hey, what else is this person kind of doing? Now, an audit is a little more serious, and it's kind of a risk-based approach, uh, and they're kind of analyze specific areas, right? So, like, common areas are, you know, people who have a very extravagant lifestyle but haven't reported a lot of income, right? So, that's typically falls under a high net worth audit where they compare your lifestyle to your reported income. Then you have people who, HST is a very big one, people who buy and sell real estate a lot, claiming their principal residence exemptions. These are, I guess, some of the common audit areas and audits are, you know, typically with more senior CRA staff and it's a lot more intensive and you're typically looking at, depending on your situation, several thousand dollars and it's a lot more intensive. They may want to visit you, whatever the case may be. So if you're having a review, it's not so bad. If you're having an audit, those are less common, but it, they really take a risk-based approach and, and you really got to make sure you're doing things right so that they don't kind of audit you 
And is there a cost to an audit? Like, or is it just what you have to pay your accountant to help you kind of manage what their questions are? It is really just pay your accountant or lawyer because some people just engage a lawyer at that point to kind of manage manage the response for you. Plus, obviously, if there's any findings that you owe, so. Exactly. Yeah. So there's there's also kind of negligence penalties or gross or sorry gross negligence or I can't remember the other term for it. Where if you or fraudulent penalties that where if you're doing things incorrect, they will charge penalties on top of that. Because they have to, I guess. Otherwise, you just plead ignorance. Oh, I didn't know. I'll just pay you the money now. They're like everyone would. You just might as well just do that forever. Yeah. Exactly. Some of the most common ones. I think the average audits. There's a statistic with average small business audit, they collect, I think, an average of 160,000 or in that range. Ooh. And so it does an insane amount. And you're like, yeah. wow, that's <laughs> a lot, <laughs> Not a little bit there. <laughs> and I think what, what is, why that is, is because one of the most common issues you see with any corporation is shareholder loans. And there's like a whole bunch of issues with doing that. And it directly goes into your personal income tax at your marginal rate. And so typically, adds to quite a bit of amount when you go through those. So I think that's typically why the, the average collection on audits are really high. And so you'd never really want to go through an audit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, back to kind of like the investments and tax saving. What are your thoughts on life insurance as an investment vehicle? I love it. You know, life insurance salespeople have been all over the place lately and they've been I, it's just so funny how, how they've been pitching life insurance as, you know, an investment vehicle. And I think the idea of life insurance is not like inherently a terrible one. Like it is a way to transfer risk from yourself to insurance company to prevent, you know, your family or whoever for, with financial hardship if you're to pass away, right? And so there are different types of life insurance. And I think the one that typically gets sold most because it has relatively high commission costs or commission is this whole life insurance, right? And that's the one that you typically hear people selling as an investment vehicle. And I think like if you if you evaluate it based on investment criteria, and so just the general investment criteria, I evaluate investments are on our performance, you know, liquidity, safety of principle, fees and taxes, right? And so if you really look at each one of these criteria, it doesn't doesn't end up looking like such a great investment vehicle, right? And so, especially liquidity, you would have to collapse your policy or take out a loan in order to access it. Fees are incredibly high. The safety of the principal, you can argue their safety, but really, you'd have to collapse the policy if that's if that if you want to access it. But the the one that gets the the thing that they sell so often on it are the tax benefits, and I think. One thing I didn't know several years ago until I really looked into it is the tax benefits that they tell us about, you know, when we go through our training and stuff, we only see it from the owner's manager side and not the holistic planning. And I think when you actually dive into the tax, the tax implications and you look at the overall taxes at play, so you look at the life insurance company's taxes on the profits and just other kind of criteria, it ends up not being the most tax a beneficial thing like it's sold it's made out to be right so generally i don't think of it as a great investment vehicle but i do think if you do need life insurance it's it's worth considering as long as you kind of evaluate it based on other evaluate it based on the other kinds of life insurance that are out there because there are a lot of other you know more cost friendly uh, types of cost and uh, of life insurance term life insurance cheap all you need 
There you go. That's all you need. (laughs) Just get term life insurance. You know, we've talked about the resident reminder. We've talked about general principles. We do always like to give a shout out to our senior surgeons or established surgeons, however you want to call them. And these are people that have been working for 20, 25 years. They're not considering retirement. They love their work. They're very established, very successful. Let's say they're 10 years away from slowing down or becoming part-time. They're really at like their peak earning and peak business, but they are trying to figure out what am I supposed to be doing? How can I be more effective or how should I be planning ahead? So one of the biggest things they run into and, and one of the questions that we received in the mail was passive income and the impact on your small business deduction. So can you explain this concept and how it works and what people should or should not do about it? For sure. So I think that's a very common one where you might, which you kind of alluded to earlier, which basically said if your passive income goes over 50000 then the amount of your income that's the amount of your business income that's subject to the 12% rate goes down, right? So let's just say you're at um, $50,001 of passive income. Uh, then instead of the first $500,000 of income being a business income being subject to 12%, ends up being like 500,000 minus $5, right? And it keeps going such that at- Because it's a five to one ratio. Exactly. And can you just explain to our listeners what you mean by passive income? Because some people might not even know what passive income For sure. So passive income is basically, it generally means any sort of type of realized investment income, right? So if you have dividends, if you have interest income, rental income, capital gains, realized capital gains, those are all considered passive income. And what happens if that passive income uh, goes to 50, beyond 50,000, then it affects the limit of your, the, the business limit you have that's, that you pay 12% tax on on your business income. And so th- that is kind of the main reason why using your RRSP and TFSAs is such a great idea because you can earn investment income through those vehicles, which won't be subject to uh, which won't be included in that $50,000 passive income. They only really look at passive income earned in, in your corporations, right? So I think that's uh, a key consideration. So I think for those types, for those people, one of the key, the key ideas for them is number one, if depending on what type of investments you're making, right? You may not need to realize a lot of your, a lot of your investment income right away. So if you have things that are appreciating, right? And you're primarily earning capital gains and it's just appreciating without, you know, ever being realized until you really have to retire. And then you're basically avoiding that $50,000 passive income, right? And so that's one great strategy to kind of take into consideration. Like if you have stocks that are going up in value, but they don't pay a dividend, therefore technically you haven't, appre- they haven't they appreciate on paper, but you haven't, re- you haven't made any money. It's not going to affect, it's not going to affect your passive income. Exactly. Yeah. And so other strategies can include basically, you know, when you set up a holding company, which I said, you know, if you, you're making investments, you want to set up a holding company, you could do something called an estate freeze or something called a wasting estate freeze, where eventually that money, you, you kind of basically transfer ownership to other people. And then you kind of pay yourself out over time. And so you're no longer really involved in that corporation. And then someone else in your family could kind of be involved in that corporation. And, and so they are an associated for purposes of business in- for purposes of the passive income rules. And so that's another strategy that you could really consider, right? And then third thing is there's two provinces actually in Ontario. Sorry, two provinces in Canada. I think it's Ontario and Nova Scotia, where you 
there's actually kind of a loophole here. And it, it is kind of hard to follow along because it is a little complicated. But basically, every province has said, you know what, we're going to, these passive income rules, we're going we're gonna to conform to them, right? So whatever the federal rules are, we're going to conform to them. Uh, Ontario and Nova Scotia said, you know what, we're not going to conform to them. So you can actually end up, it's, it's involves kind of some modeling and stuff, but you can end up in a situation where you're actually better off intentionally passing those $50,000 of passive income rules and, and paying yourself the income than if you just were subject to the 12% tax the, on the whole thing. So it's a little loophole. It does require a little, a little modeling and like overall the benefits aren't like crazy amazing, but they're only slightly amazing, like slightly depending on what your situation is. But I think that definitely gets missed in a lot of people in it, but it really is only applicable in Ontario. Okay, I got a question for that 50,000 50, passive income. Is that for all your corporations? Or like say you end up having 10 hold co's. Does each hold co have that $50,000 passive income? No, so it's looked at on an associated basis. So all your associated companies, and that would mean so all your all your holding companies are- All have the, like all has that 150, oh, okay. Yeah, it makes sense. Otherwise you would just keep setting up hold co one, two, three, four. Each person has like 12 corporations they're just sitting on. <laughs> Oscar, trust me with your estate freeze. I promise I'll pay you. <laughs> <laughs> you can trust me. There's one person on its line. It's not you, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> trust me, I'll, I'll do well. And then, you know, Mo, what are your thoughts on, you know, when we're talking about passive income and that, you know, most people advise kind of maybe a buy and hold strategy of just, you know, buy your marketable securities, your index funds. ETFs, things like that, and just hold it. Other people maybe recommend, you know, diversity into real estate or other classes. Do you just kind of base it on the person themselves and what they're looking for? Or is there generally a tax benefit to doing different things? Or can you just do a buy and hold approach and be fine? So, so I think there's, uh, there are considerations for different things, but I think taxes is, is just one component when looking at your investment strategy. I'm also not a financial advisor, so I can't give, technically, if I can't give financial advice, right? Accountants aren't that, but in general, like I've seen people go the real estate route and I've seen people go the investment route and real estate is not, it's not that passive. So I think when you, when you think about real estate, you know, people look at the returns and stuff. And if you're actually calculating the returns, they're not, you know, substantially different from people who are like invested into like low fee ETFs or whatever the case is. And on top of that, the stress levels of the people who are invested in those equities or whatever the case is, bonds, are much lower than people who are managing a whole bunch of real estate and like, I guess, refuse to uh, hire property managers, even with property managers, it's, you, you have your issues and stuff. So I personally, I am personally only invested in equities. I can't say what other people do, but that's technically what I do just from my experience of seeing the returns on a year to year basis and seeing the stress levels. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. Do you have any shout outs you want to give? I mean, you've been so kind. You've dedicated all this time. Yeah. You, you've answered all our questions. To be honest, we actually don't have a podcast. This is just us wanting to ask you for free for two hours for free <laughs> and not and not have to pay your fee or whatever that would be. But do you have any shout outs to give or how can people get in touch with you or follow you? For sure. I'm very big on Twitter. Uh, that's like my main thing. The tax heroes or Canadian tax guys, how you can find me. You can also search me up on our website, taxheroes.ca. And I'm big on TikTok also. So Canadian, Canada tax guy, that's not big on TikTok. I'm 
growing my TikTok. I'm still relatively new. Shout out. Follow him on TikTok. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking for your follow tonight. So if you're not following me, Oscar, I'm, I'm going to be I don't have that. TikTok, but I'll, I'll get it just to follow you because <laughs> this was so informative. I'll get my wife to follow. Listen, Mo, I've never, I've never seen Oscar pay more attention to a guest in the history of our podcast than you describing how to save money. <laughs> Today was productive, man. I appreciate it, guys. For our American listeners, I think you also do some American planning, or at least for dual citizens. Yeah, I spent a lot of time actually doing cross-border tax. So it's, I've dealt with a lot of dual citizens and I guess learned a lot about U.S. tax. We don't do necessarily the compliance, but we do advise a lot of American advisors. So we have done that, but we, we typically only do it on an advisory basis. We don't necessarily do any tax returns or anything like that. Nice. So your, your client base is anywhere in Canada or province specific, or who do you normally have? Anywhere in Canada, except McGill. And I think you went to, sorry, except Quebec. And I think you went to McGill, right? Yeah, I went to McGill, yeah. No hard feelings, but just Quebec is just a fun province to deal with. And they like giving, they like giving people a lot of problems. So sometimes it's, <laughs> it's, it's just not, not worth, worth the, head. the effort. Exactly. Yeah, just like some patients, you know what? It's not worth the money. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So anyone in Canada, maybe not Quebec, can reach out to you for, for tips or advice or sign on with you guys. So uh, you're really, really famous on, on Twitter. I, I know that's for sure where we heard a lot about you and you came highly recommended. And listen, you delivered. So we really, really appreciate you coming on taking the time to educate us. This was a lot of fun and uh, we really appreciate it. So thanks so much for coming. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Well, Oscar, I thought that was absolutely fantastic. Definitely lived up to the hype. And I think most importantly, it's really going to educate our listeners on a broad variety of topics related to tax. I think everyone's going to love it. And like kind of like we talked about, it's probably going to be one of our most listened to episodes. Yeah, I think, I mean, Ben Felix's episode on investing is still blowing up all the time. It's super up there. Uh, yeah, I joked about it during the interview, but Oscar, I've never seen you so smiling and attentive during a guest segment. You loved it. Yeah, I thought because I also thought he was really funny. Like, yeah, he's a fun guy. He's very personable, especially for an accountant. Yeah, that this is what surprised me. <laughs> <laughs> like, no offense, but I was like, yeah, he's really cool. But I also thought as we start working more, we need to prepare for this. Mm-hmm. If not, like we're just wasting money. So it was very yeah, important. You don't want to throw away money. No, yeah, it's not. It's not worth it. They're saving so. Thanks so much to Mo. Really appreciate it. Hopefully you as the listeners found that helpful. As I mentioned, we tried to incorporate all your questions, so hopefully you enjoyed it. So without further ado, let's jump into our journal club. So this month on journal club, we're doing something a little bit different. We picked kind of an article. I don't even know if you really want to call it an article, but it's called Proceedings of the Third American Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgeons Anesthesia Patient Safety Conference. So it's the third annual Amos Anesthesia Patient Safety Conference by Krishnan et al. All these people are on this committee on anesthesia from Amos. It's about anesthesia and patient safety. It's actually a good initiative because one of the biggest issues that's coming up in our profession is this anesthesia model, single provider, dual provider. What's the future of this? So they talk about the history of these conferences and basically 13 speakers shared their strategies during this conference. It focused on various topics regarding patient safety, such as patient selection, crisis management, the nature of human error, quality improvement initiatives, and evidence of safety. And basically, the following is a synopsis of presentations that were given at that forum. So as I mentioned, it wasn't really an article. No. It's just kind of like, hey, we had a meeting, and here are the bullet points since you you weren't there. You couldn't attend. Here's what happened. Yeah. 
which is fine. So I don't want people to think of this article. This is more just to discuss what they're telling us and then see how it relates to it. So first of all, they talked about safety parameters and they said, you know, the AAA HC core standards, as well as their practice-based standards, they outlined them. And they expanded on the agency's roadmap for emphasizing the quality of care in each facility, including what you should be doing, which is review of documentation, allergies, protocols for equipment maintenance, safe ingestion practices, and emergency drills. So right away, I wanted to ask you, Oscar, do you have to do anything related to this type of thing? Is this just done for you at your practice? Are there any kind of drills you guys go through or protocols you have? Like, what is your exposure to this side of oral surgery, which is the safety, compliance, and emergency drill side? Yeah, so I would say out of all of these, the only thing that I'm not part of is the actual equipment maintenance. I have no idea how that takes place, to be honest with you. I'd be lying if I did. Like our GA machine, all that stuff. I have no idea, like our, our kind of our team lead or our nurse lead organizes always all that. But the other stuff, yeah, like allergies with patients, review documentation. They're my patients, right? I, I have to be doing that. Sure. The nurses are always prepared. I'll walk in, they'll be like, Hey, this is 17 year old female, blah, 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 whatever they tell you. But I still will always check my charts because I'm the one doing the surgery. If it really mattered, we do kind of safe and not really safe injection practice, emergency drills. We do when we have our ACLS and our, and our PALS training. We also kind of do like a little a side section where we do emergency drills. And then also when we do our BLS training yearly, we also just get someone to get the crash card just so that they have that protocol in place because sometimes you'll just forget it. Or sometimes you hire, well, we've seen a decent amount of turnover in staff. You hire new staff. They're maybe not aware of how everything works at the office. So I would say I'm involved with almost all of them, except for I have no idea about the equipment maintenance. I don't know about you. You own the office, so you might be more involved in, in everything. Yeah, I mean, similar to you though, in the sense that I have to know all these things and we have to implement the policies and actually come up with them all myself and have documentation and reviews and things like that. What I would say for equipment maintenance is there, there are regulations you have to follow, but I do kind of delegate that to someone saying, okay, you're in charge of this, so you have to maintain it. You know, nurses will do monitors, assistants might do sterilization equipment, things like that, especially being, you know, a small office. And we're not going to have like a head of sterilization or maybe like a head of nursing, things like that. One thing I would mention though is for me, I have the one office I own. I'm always in the same place. For you now, you're kind of, it sounds like mostly at the same office right now. You've kind of focused down into one of the offices. But before, when you were traveling, you know, you're in a group practice, they're going to send you to multiple offices. Did you find it difficult as far as like knowing the layout or maybe where stuff is emergency wise or protocols or how did you handle that? And, and so maybe it's because I was new and maybe it's not, but I would say I would attribute to I am more comfortable, I'll give you completely, I'm much more comfortable now that I'm only at one office. I like being at one office. One, the staff knows me completely, they know the way I work. There's really never any hesitation because they know exactly what I'm going to do. But that also means I know where exactly where everything is too, right? And I also know 90% of the time, I know the staff I'm working with, right? Because it's just the one office. Sometimes when I was going to the other office where I'm going, I'm rotating, you're only there once a week or once every two weeks. That's a lot harder to get to know how people work, to build that trust with them because you do have to trust your team. Not when things are easy, because that's always easy, right? But when it's like, oh, it's a little bit stressful, I need to know that they're going to be efficient enough and quick enough and know where everything is that I don't have to ask for it twice. Working in the one office has made my comfort level way, way higher. I guess even from your like commute and schedule point of view, you know, like I'm going to work, yeah. I know where I'm going, I don't how have long to, it takes. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to go to the wrong office. Exactly. Like now it, it's like on autopilot, right? Like it takes me 25 yeah. minutes in the morning and it'll probably take me 35 minutes when I come home. It's, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So no, okay. I'm much, it's much easier with the one office. Okay. Moving on. The next topic they talk about is patient selection, preoperative assessment, 
So his presentation focused on the preoperative assessment for office-based anesthesia with the goal to improve patient selection, outcomes, and communication strategies for the office team, the importance of a focused airway exam and the team's ability to manage that airway, staff factors included proper orientation of inexperienced staff of the office layout and equipment, along with didactic and hands-on simulation training. He also discussed how the physical layout of the office can be overlooked, which is, for example, you know, can you yeah. fit a stretcher through? Can emergency services come yeah. through? So, Brad, I'll start off with you. What is your criteria for kind of office-based anesthesia when you're assessing a patient? And do you do like a specific airway assessment or anything in particular when it comes to your sedation cases? Yeah. Well, I'm also an Amos fellow, so I have uh, partaken in this office evaluation every five years. And so this all has to be documented. Another surgeon will come into my office, review charts, review our whole setup. And it's actually a very helpful thing because you're just getting a second set of eyes on your protocols. They'll talk to your staff and they're just there really to give you recommendations. It's not to say like, oh, you're doing this wrong. It's like, okay, this is what Amos does require. You know, maybe you're deficient here or you're doing better here. And you just get a chance to chat about it. And then they'll tell me what's their experience. So. Uh, I, I found it to be very beneficial. I think that's great when you're, especially like you, Brad, you're by yourself, right? I am. So, so someone else coming in, that's great. Yeah. And so I have a, I'm at, I can't believe I can't remember his name now. Tim Kelling, Tim Kelling from, where's he from? Just like two and a half hours south of me. So I'm on an island. Is that, is that Manhattan? No, no. It would be a Glens Falls area that he comes out, Lake George, Glen Falls. So he's nice enough. Every five years, he makes the trip up. You know, it takes time off work to come evaluate my office because I couldn't find anyone else to come up. So, and I've, I have a lot of respect for him and he's a bit older. So he's given me a lot of tips and because I kind of started on my own, took over for, you know, the guy that was there and we didn't really have much overlap. So he's been kind of that's a intimidating. Really good mentor. Yeah. Like, that, yeah. That's, so he's been yeah. a really good mentor. Now, as far as, you know, you're going to do your health history, you're going to do review your consultations. Uh, this is where you're going to do your risk stratification based on their medical status. You know, I used ASA. So ones and twos, pretty good go. ASA threes, you know, maybe light sedation, consider oral sedation or no sedation. And as I mentioned in the paper, you have to be very upfront with your patients and tell them, I don't feel comfortable doing this. This should be done in a hospital or it needs to be done under, under local. And for my ASA threes, you know, ASA twos that I'm, I have some suspicion about. I will get their latest H&P, consult with any, you know, medical practitioners. And I'm not really asking them for permission to do it because I should be deciding that on my own. I'm just asking for more information because I want to optimize the patient. And then you're going to tailor your, your anesthesia plan according to that patient. So, you know, I want to be in the room when we give a little bit of the, you know, maybe the Versed, the fentanyl, and I want to see how they react to it. I don't want my staff giving, you know, standard dosages because they may become over sedated. So maybe I'll go a little bit lighter and work my way up. As far as airway, malum patty, you know, chin neck angle, you know, chin length, you know, the, the standard stuff for that. A lot of it is like, do I think I can intubate this patient easily? <laughs> it's like, are, are you going to suck? And the other thing is, you know, we do that intuitively, but we also need to document that on your paperwork. So on your consultation, that's all has to be written. So we get a set of vitals, you know, we have an airway exam that's documented and then we can take that forward. So do you do any GAs in your office? No, it's all, you never bring in a, like a medical dental team. I would love to, but I, it's all me. You should. Okay. Yeah. 
Fair enough. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, the next topic they talk about is uh, evidence of safety. And, you know, they kind of reviewed all the previous papers that show, you know, there's so many cases that have been documented. What is the incidence of death? What is the incidence of complications low, with local, with IV sedation, with general anesthesia? You know, they talked about how in one study with GA it was 7.1 out of every thousand, whereas for sedation, it was 8.6 out of a thousand. And for local, it was 6 out of a thousand. I was surprised at how there was not a significant, not, not a significant, but they, that they were so close. I, I was so quite surprised. And and obviously there's going to be things like case selection and things like that. For sure. I think what a lot of residents forget or new practitioners forget is, how does local is your safest bet? Like it's, 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 it's a very good tool that you need to understand how to use and when to use it and when it's appropriate. You know what it, what I've realized too? Training will influence that, right? Like we have a, we have a surgeon that you work with too, Wendell, at Sinai, Maria. She trained in Spain. They do a ton of things under local. Yeah. She's yeah. happy to do things that I'd be like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> and like I would sedate this patient for sure. And she's like, oh, we can do it with local. Like no issues, no hesitation. Right. And then I went to Mexico. Like I talked to her for the course. Right. Things where I was like, I never do. I'm not going to never going to do an all four with local. And we did nine over three days. I would say this is where your consultation really comes in. I mean, if you're telling your patients that they're at a higher risk for anesthesia, they don't want to take that risk. So it's all in your patient management. So maybe you take more time, you know, you put some numbing jelly on, you numb very slow, you kind of talk them through it. You know, once they're numb, they do well, you know, you just talk them through the procedure. Like, oh, you're going to hear a little crack here. That's normal. I meant to do that. Your jaw's not broken. You're like, actually, this one I didn't mean to do. So so it's just creating that atmosphere that I I really believe most things can be done under local if you set the patient up for that. Now, if you don't, this is where you run into problems. (laughs) You're like, you're like, you stabbed me with the needle. You didn't tell me that was going to happen. Like, oh, I forgot that. Yeah. 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 No, for sure. So the last study they cited was from 2021 in the Mayo Clinic. It was a retrospective cohort study. And basically, it was a single provider OMFS, uh, single person anesthesia model over a 15 year period. It was, there was a 0.1% risk of adverse uh, events and no mortality. So overall, they said, you know, the OMS model of office based anesthesia is extremely safe. It's very regulated. It's very well documented. So we kind of need to keep that delivery model because it's really crucial to comfort levels for our patients and what we can do in our office. Next, they moved on to talking about lessons learned from wrong site surgery. So doing correct surgery, but in the wrong location. So dental alveolar surgery comprises over 60% of both the number of cases and payment of claim. You know, many of the cases are wrong tooth extraction and most are avoidable. He reviewed five cases of wrong tooth extraction, including referral error, failure to examine the patient properly, wrong x-rays, wrong orientation, and change in treatment plan. And I think this is such a crucial thing where there's so many, we don't realize how many steps there are between a patient being seen, referred to you, book, arriving, paperwork, x-rays, confirming, clinical exam, coming back, surgery, procedure, instrumentation. Like there's so many steps where if one tiny thing goes wrong, it's it, it could be it could be a disaster. I remember I had one referral where, for some reason, you know, this office refers a lot, and on one t- one referral, the pan was mirror imaged on the referral. And the reason I realized is there was luckily one tooth that really stuck out of the pan as being like, oh wow, that tooth is like super super erupted. 
when I looked in the mouth, I didn't see that. So on the other side, and right away, your brain is like, well, something's going on, or is this the right pan? Is it the wrong pan? And then you, and I realized by looking at the patient, their fillings and restorations and comparing that the whole pan was mirror image. It just happened one time. So you have to be extremely careful. You have to double, triple check everything. And, you know, I'm really, really strict with patients, especially when it's not obvious things like, yeah, wisdom do we know where they are. You just got to count the teeth of that. But especially, you know, premolar extractions, baby teeth, adult teeth. I literally will like point to the teeth in the kid's mouth and show the mom and be like, this is the tooth we're removing. It's the one without a bracket. It's an adult tooth. It's a permanent tooth. Like I drill it into them because I, I, you know, you never want to be, I never want to be in a situation where you have to go have that conversation where, you know, I pulled out the wrong tooth or. But even being that safe, right? Like let's say a patient's coming to see you and then all of a sudden the, the referral sends you a new referral that you just missed. Right. Like it's, it's, it's not, it's not that difficult for this to happen. Like you're saying, like, even if you are super, super cautious, it can still easily happen. Knock on wood, it hasn't happened yet. Well, it's like me reviewing referrals. I mean, how many, how many of them, at least in my practice, don't come signed? I don't know who filled it out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) When was the x-ray taken? You know, like I can see the case for people that want to, I'm going to do all my own x-rays to make sure they're up to date. You know, the referral Senate, they said they put the tooth that's not there. Like that tooth probably hasn't been there for eight years. What are you talking about? And I think for anyone, especially the younger surgeons that maybe are residents, it, it's worth its weight in gold to pick up the phone and just delay the case if you're not oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's absolutely. a big practice builder. Sure. Maybe it's a waste, like it's time spent, but you need to do it. Like you said, if you have to delay the surgery, even if it means you're not doing it that day and you're bringing them back another day, it's still worth it. It's, it saves you that headache. And one of the other really, really, not red flags, it's like, Tricky situations I find is a patient's referred to for removal of one tooth. Everything's great. Consult, both. and the day of, they're like, oh, by the way, my dentist added yes. another tooth. Can we just yes. do it at the same time? You got to be so careful because yeah. I find those last minute changes is where things can really go wrong, especially when it's sedation and you're like, oh, come on. Like, yeah. 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 So, I think I the trickiest one also is partial mouth extractions. Those you, know, you have to really yeah. count the teeth, make sure yeah. your whole staff knows which teeth are saved. I, I I like to have the partial in my office so I can compare that yeah. it's there. You know, pull it out, put it on the surgical tray, make sure that those are the teeth you're keeping. Yeah, whenever I'm doing a non-full, like multiple extractions, so not full mouth, and I know they're getting a denture in, I will just make a little chart of like, these are the teeth I'm taking out because you can easily mess that up. And especially, like you said, if they're coming with their denture already made and you took out the wrong tooth. And like, that's why sometimes it helps to look at the denture too, yeah. to see like what teeth are in yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So principles of crisis management, we'll skip over that one. Nature of human error. The one line that I absolutely loved was we can be lulled into thinking we are so safe true. because we have practiced many years without a major safety incident. But research demonstrates that years of training and experience does not confer superiority when it comes to. So just because things have gone great for 10 years doesn't mean you're not going to mess up. This is where doing in-office simulation becomes very beneficial. So like we have a mannequin and we do it once a month and we go over scenarios. And the key is I don't want to know the scenario as well. I, I shouldn't be the one making up all the scenarios. So you soon to realize that there's just little things that you don't pick up on that you think are intuitive that in the in the moment. When you're stressed, you just miss out on, you know? So I think this is where it's really important to do these, to take the time with your staff, because you're just going to get more efficient because when push comes to shove, I mean, it's natural as a human to freeze, 
And so you have to make it almost automatic to where you're able to think and move at the same time instead of just trying to, for the first time, you're, you're dealing with this. So I, I can't say enough for trying to practice these things with your staff. And then you also see the deficiencies in your staff, like who's good at, at doing what, what do they know, and, and they need to be challenged. And who's a pylon? You're going to keep you in the corner. Yeah, because we might have, be comfortable intubating, but if your staff isn't comfortable giving you the tube, you're yep. trying to do everything at once. Yeah, you can't That's run around. It's a disaster. Yeah, you yeah. have to be a well-tuned machine. Yeah. They do talk about quality improvements in almost practice, and they talk about the importance of documentation of eye protection, proper waste management, control medications use. Waste was discussed. This, this made me think of something, and pet peeve is the right word, but it is something I, I will say I've noticed between different surgeons. So, Oscar, you're injecting local. You you finish giving the local, you have the syringe and the needles open in your in your hands. How are you capping that needle? What is the process? What is, what is the next step? So I have a tray, like we have our, our dental tray with everything on it. The cap is on that tray and I just slide the needle back onto the cap. You do the scoop technique where you, you slide the needle into the cap and then and then secure with your other hand. What? Yeah, I secure it, yes. Most of the time I'm like, okay, if... It's just, it's like, it's so well in there that I don't really have to unless I'm, and then when I leave, when I'm leaving the case and I'm done, then I'll re-secure it. Okay. But you're locking it without touching, meaning you're not doing the thing where you, you hold up the cap and then you kind of like, you know, no. aim and put the needle. I don't like try to dart cap. my finger. Dart. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause a lot of people do that. Yeah. It, it bothers me whenever I see that. I do the scoop technique and I find the dart technique. I'm just kind of like, oh, there's a cap. Let me just put it in the middle. And they show that you can poke yourself that way. I find it like high risk and like low reward. And I don't understand what people do. So I also do the scoop technique. Brad, how about you? OSHA requires that you have a barrier in the U.S. So we have these blue things that go around. Oh, the like, like so a little hat. You, no matter what technique you use, yes. it's a it's a physical barrier to prevent. Uh, I've seen it. Needle sticks. Yeah, it almost oh, wow. looks like a turtleneck around your needle. And I'm pretty sure it's an OSHA requirement that you have to have that barrier. Otherwise, wow, I've never could, seen this before. You could be liable for an employee stick. Wow. Oh, wow. That's good. Never yeah, seen. That's good. Just like Next. safety glasses for patients is in the yeah. states a requirement actually and patients we, always we, want to take off their glasses and i'm like no yeah, they, they need to have some kind of safety safety know, glasses are a requirement in the states wow we for use it for everyone you use it oscar no oh well. yeah, yeah like we, if, safety glasses we do we do or don't some patients like if a patient said oh like can i take my glasses off like let's say they bring their glasses i never asked me mm-hmm. to take off the glasses, but like can i take them off? Yeah. yeah i've never thought of that that's actually good oh wow yeah no we, I, I put them on everyone because there's been some closed case documentation of Bacteria from the mouth getting into the eye causing infection, and you're liable because you didn't protect. Yeah, that's true. That's it. Everyone's going to save the last. Gotta love the states. They yeah. think of everything. <laughs> I'm going to put a mask on a patient. Yeah. <laughs> one of those sleep masks. Yeah. You're not seeing anything. And the other one that bugs me is suturing. Do you, do you clamp your needle yeah. like safely and like turn it towards yeah, yeah, the yeah. needle the driver reversed, so you yes. can't? Yeah. The reverse. It bothers me beyond belief when people don't do that. It's such a simple thing. It's so inconsiderate not to do it. It really bugs me when people like, just like throw it down on the tray and like don't clamp their needle. I even tell my, like sometimes when you get used two needles, like you're using two sutures, I tell them, hey guys, I have an uncapped one. I am putting yeah. it here. Like I, I'm very adamant with that. I do not want people getting hurt by my mistake. Yeah. Okay, good. Brad, you're the same way. Yeah. And then cleaning up nice. sharps when you're done with the procedure. That's a big... I remember when I was in residency, I asked for the backhand of a 15 for a nose fracture and they gave yeah. it to me loaded and just sliced my hand. So I'd have to oh, spend no. the whole after, you know, evening in the ER to get oh. my testing done. So. Oh no. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. 
And the last topic was errors in medication. So medication-related errors, they included ignoring documented known allergies. That's a no-no. Not considering drug interactions, something we probably need to think more about every yeah. time you know you're you're doing that because there's so many errors in dosing. So the common things are easy, but every anytime you're doing something more unique or where you want to look up the actual dosing, especially when it comes to pediatric dosing, mm-hmm. that dosing is completely different. Mm-hmm. And then errors in preparing medications. We don't really prepare the medications. You the nurses do it, but something you want to be cognizant of, especially is knowing the concentration. So when you tell them one cc or this, like you got to know what is what in the syringes. Yeah, especially when sometimes some of your normal like dosing or is not available like ketamine was not really available so so the concentration was very different when we were ordering lately you, your staff has to be aware of that a couple things we do different size syringes for each medication so yeah. you can't mess up the medication that's what our office does too we have a spreadsheet for you know our pediatrics so we will put their weight in which will spew out what the dosage should be for acls drugs common you know Everything that you may use, we post that up on the the back wall. So, you know, if push comes to shove, we we have the dosages right there. That's smart. So overall, overall, you know, this paper, whatever you want to call it, was just as a discussion point. I, it's more, I like the fact that they're doing this each year and thinking about these things because you need to be constantly reevaluating. And it actually shows like, hey, look, us as a profession, look how safe we've been and look how much we think about this, look how much we care. You know, we're putting these practices into play. So I think it makes our profession look good. And also gives us food for thought to maybe think of what we can do to improve our own practice. Yeah. I've, I've heard in the States that's going to be mandated as far as this five-year reassessment that you're going to have to take your staff to a training center and do simulations. And I imagine Canada's will, will happen. Not going to be far know, behind. Was it, yeah. was it one of the offices I think in Edmonton is doing? They're giving a, a course or... They do a difficult airway course in Calgary. Yeah. And then also in yeah. Calgary and Toronto. Okay, good. So this year it was in Calgary. I think hopefully next yeah. year will be in Toronto. The year before it was in Toronto. Yeah. So they're kind of alternating, yeah. And Amos now has a sim lab in Chicago that you can do this at. Mm-hmm. Bring your staff out there. And then they have the dance program too, where they will train your staff for what we do. And I, I've heard it's pretty hard. Like It's not wow. easy to pass that. Oh. They have to be employed for at least six months and then... I think it's something like six months of training for this. And then they have to go to a testing center and pass an, an exam. And then they get a certification for dance. Wow. Wow. That's great. Yeah, good to look into. So that concludes our Journal Club segment. Let's go into our final segment, recommendations. So I'll kick off the recommendations. You know, it's always tough to go to the theaters and see a movie. It's much easier just to wait until you can stream it or download it or whatever. Especially when it comes to this new movie, Killers of the Flower Moon. This is Martin Scorsese, Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro. This is the type of movie where, I'll be honest, where a lot of times these long Scorsese movies, I don't, some of them I like, some of them I don't like, some of the near movies I do, some of them I don't. But I really like Leonardo DiCaprio. I really like his movies. I have been rewatching some of the Scorsese movies recently. So I was like, you know what? This is one where I would like to see in theaters. And also it's three and a half hours long, which is just outrageous. I actually think it's the longest movie that I've ever heard of or seen myself because Titanic was always the longest one I could think of, but that's three hours. This is three and a half hours. Revenant, wasn't that pretty long? Wasn't that close to three and a half? I never saw it. I never saw it. I know I said, I admit, I'm contradicting myself because I said I like Leonardo DiCaprio but instantly I was like this movie is just meant to get an Oscar it looks really dumb so I've never seen yeah. it filmed in Canada you can't even fast forward it because you're at the theater <laughs> yeah, there's no fast forwarding 
three and a half hours, no intermission. In India, when they show this movie, there's an intermission. So you can go to the bathroom, get some popcorn. See, get some they drinks. know what's up. They know they what's should, up. So they no should bring back intermission. I agree yeah. with that. Movies yeah. should have intermissions again. Nobody wants me getting a DVT. Yeah. No, you know what? Yeah. Just give us a little 10 minute break. Like, it, anyways. So, I mean, it was a good movie. I enjoyed it. It was high quality. It was long. Like, it could easily have been two and a half hours instead of three and a half hours. But, you know, I think for certain movies, it's just nice to go to the theaters because it, for movies, like, you know, you want to see them. You kind of want to get that audience experience. So, I did enjoy going to it. Whether or not you need to see, you could probably just wait to watch it at home and maybe break it up into two two sessions. But I did enjoy the movie. What about you, Oscar? What's your recommendation? Uh, I Like I told you last month, I haven't really been watching too much TV or pretty much any, but Lex was watching, and I, I, I may sound dumb for this, but Lex was watching the sh- the new show on Netflix, Beckham, and I watched it, and I, I didn't think I was going to watch it at all. But since Lena, Lena's been born, I was, I'm so much, I'm so into soccer again. I'm like, okay, you know what she's watching? I'm going to watch it with her. And I have to give him credit. I was impressed about him, about how much dedication he had to the game, how much he grew. Like, I like people who are successful and what he's accomplished with Miami and in MLS. I actually liked the show. I I didn't think he was the gr- a very great soccer player when I watched him play. Like, he was surrounded by really, really talented people. So I don't think he was the best soccer player. But watching his story, I was like, you know what? I'm going to give you way more credit than I thought I was going to give you before. So I actually really liked it. So it's funny because I've been watching that with Bianca. I think we have like half an episode left, maybe one episode left. And while I was watching it, I was actually thinking of you thinking Oscar is making Lexi watch this because it falls in his like master scheme of like make her fall in love with sports that I like. So then she thinks she wants to watch it. But this is she reversed you. She she brought you to it. Yeah, I'm surprised. Yeah. yeah, because it's like Victoria Beckham was in there and Beckham so like fancy and fashion and stuff. So that she liked it from that perspective. But I actually enjoyed it. I did think I was like, you know what? You I just thought you were a pretty boy before, but you 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 worked really hard to where you got and like you've become a very successful person. And he's pretty honest. Yeah, what'd you think about his OCD? You know what? I love the OCD part. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. was nuts. Like the, the closets. Yeah. That, that, even when I saw that, I'm like, you know what? I even like, I, I, I like I you more. Yeah, yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Like I like you more because of that OCD. Like you're not just. I'm so disaster. opposite. I'm like, my closet is an absolute disaster. Oh, I'm not saying mine is. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Lexi's closet's like that. She's so. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. But, but no, uh, you know what? So I, I really enjoyed it. And then I was like, you accomplished a lot in your life. So good for you. He went through a lot too. Yeah. Like I didn't realize how much he went through. And I think like if I had to diagnose him, like I think that's part of where his OCD comes from. Yeah. That he had so much, like didn't have control and mm-hmm. he just wants to have control over minute stuff. Yeah. Because that's <laughs> my, how he kind of gets, survives, you know? My only pet peeve of that entire show is that he cooked one mushroom. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Only one, like he's got this whole grill turned on. He puts a tiny yeah. little bit of oil and cooks one mushroom cap. Like who is that going to feed? Nobody. That kitchen looked pretty nice. Okay. Yeah. Everything looks super nice. Every, everything looked really nice. Yeah. But that kitchen looked pretty nice. Yeah. Brad, how about you? Any recommendations? That's the only one I had. I'm really into news and I've been into this podcast called Breaking Points. That's like independent journalism. I find it kind of interesting. That's about it. Guys, you guys keep recommending podcasts every time. Like, stop taking our audiences away from our show. Just supplementing. Supplementing. Yeah. Supplementing. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Brad, do we have that guy on yet as a guest? What's his name? Peter Atia? Peter Atia is still working on it. Still right, working here, on just it. Get, check. Just get Huberman on. Come on. Yeah, we're we're going to check it. Hub- <laughs> One of the two. Well, if you, if you get Huberman job. or Peter Atia, oh. apparently we will be like famous. You can retire. 
Yeah. No, that's awesome. I don't think we're retiring on this podcast. No, no, no. no, no. If anything, this is, this is making us work longer. I think so. Yeah. These microphones are getting expensive. <laughs> <laughs> well, shout out to our listeners. Thanks for everyone for tuning in. We really appreciate the emails, the feedback, the fan mail. Shout out to Juicy J, whoever you are. Hope you enjoyed this episode. I want to know who Juicy J is. Hope though. you enjoyed this episode. And thanks again to Mo for coming on and then educating. If you want to get in touch with us, teeth and titanium OMFS at gmail.com. We will see you guys next time. Thanks, guys.